first time ever. Hear you loud and clearly. Um, and it was going place. That stuff's great. But the game is not a roguelike. Boomer shooter. <laughs> Bang. Hello, this is John St. John, and you're listening to KWEP In The Keep, bringing you all the hits from the finest in the world of gaming and entertainment. Now sit back and relax as the drowned god Cathala lulls your mind with the tastiest talk in town. Welcome to another chapter of In The Keep podcast. I'm your very own prophet of the drowned god, the Motherlode. The Keep is a collective of gaming enthusiasts compelled by the drowned god Cathala to frag and jib one another into oblivion for all eternity. Well, we're recording now, so uh, I can hear you just fine. Okay, now I have microphone <laughs> access. I think it's just like it doesn't activate until I start recording. But anyway, okay. here here we are. I'm leaving all that in. Sure. Uh, why not? <laughs> all right. Welcome back to another rousing episode of In the Keep. We are joined today by not Dusk Dev David Samansky. And I've brought We're along not on my video, good. I shouldn't wave. <laughs> <laughs> I brought along my good friend MK Schmidt to. Help us to discuss the uh, more intricate parts of indie dev that I don't understand because I have not had a career in indie development. So this will be fun. Count yourself lucky. Um, <laughs> nice well, to be here once again. Thank you, Ty. We'll get there. We'll get there eventually. Um, so I guess the big thing to start off with is uh, by the time this podcast is released, The Hunt will have just released and yeah. you've been doing a lot of shit with DreadX, so let's work through that stuff first. Uh, can sure. you tell us a little bit about the hunt itself? Yeah. Um, so it's what is it? The fourth DreadX collection, mm-hmm. um, and they all they all have like a, a narrative to them. Ted really likes doing that. Um, so this is continuing the narrative of the last three games, um, which I actually don't know very well. Uh, so that is not my part of the collection. Um, but it's a collection of horror first-person shooters. They're all, or, well, not all first-person. Horror shooters. Um, all of them are shooters in some way. Some of them involve cameras. Some of them involve crossbows, flintlocks, normal guns. Um, you know, just basically... Um, Ted approached me with the idea of, hey, do you want to host one of the DreadX collection games? Uh, or one of the DreadX collections. Um, and I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. Uh, so we talked a bit about like what the theme would be, and I kind of wanted it to be something that would... It would fit in with the sort of games that I make, because I'm creative director on this collection. I guess I didn't say that. I'm creative director on this collection. Um, <laughs> but... Um, I wanted it to fit in with the sort of games I make. So it's like, uh, you, you know, it, it's like a David Szymanski, even though I didn't make any of the games, it's like, it fits in with that brand, whatever my mm-hmm. brand is. Um, so, you know, I was throwing out like, here's, you know, what are things I'm interested in? I'm interested in abandoned locations. I'm interested in rural locations, shooting, uh, that sort of horror, just all this. So basically we came up with a theme that would kind of, 
imply a lot of that without directly assigning a lot of that. Because the other thing is I wanted to make sure that all the devs I picked to make the games were all making the sort of games they wanted to make. Um, and it wasn't just like you are making, now you are making a David Szymanski game. It was like they're, all of their visions are there, but it's just sort of all wrapped in this theme of um, you know stuff I'm interested in. So uh, the launcher bit of it is set in a Arctic base. I love Arctic horror. Um, especially my one of my favorite games is Cryostasis Sleep of Reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and the launcher is sort of playing around with the idea of being a shooter because it's not really a shooter, but there is shooting involved at certain points. Um, it's interesting. I'm not quite as involved with the launcher as with the other games. But then there are seven other games um, that are each taking the idea of being a horror shooter the idea of a game that's sort of based around hunting in some way it's not always a hunting game although there is a hunting horror game in there and it's better than squirrel stapler um so get excited for that uh but it's they're all sort of based around some idea of hunting or being hunted or or that sort of thing um with a collection of developers that i that i chose as being people that i thought would be cool to work with or that i thought um and or i should say uh have something really unique to bring to the table um and maybe aren't as recognized right now as they should be and it was hard to narrow that list down to just seven Seven. there's a lot of you know devs you could choose from for that uh but yeah that's that's essentially what the collection is and it's releasing on when is it it's in a few weeks april something mistaken what was that? I believe the 13th. Okay, the, yeah, that sounds familiar. Right around that uh, area? Yeah. So okay. in a few weeks. So uh, it, by the time this is By like the time out, this is out, yeah. It'll it'll be on the store and ready to go. Um, so I did want to touch on some of the people you picked because uh, you picked some of my favorite people. First and mm-hmm. foremost, uh, Nate. Uh, I'm looking at DreadX's website, and they credit him as Nate Burns, but it's mm-hmm. Barons. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I fucking I've been a big fan of him for a long time, especially Effigy. Just watching that project come together, but yeah. so the Arc Two is his project. Was there an Arc One? Yes, I, I'm not aware of Arc One. Um, I'm not sure to be honest. <laughs> like I said, the launcher is a little more Ted's uh, realm. I mostly have just checked yeah. in on the launcher and uh, given feedback on stuff like like development centric stuff. I'm not really yeah. involved with the story very much because that's all that's. That's Ted's baby. Um, but yeah, Nate, uh, he also developed Sagebrush. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like Nate because he's very, um, he's I guess I'd describe it as a boots-on-the-ground developer. He's not, so he, he kind of thinks in the same way about games that I do, or about mm-hmm. game development, I should say, um, where he's very much about making a artistically driven game but he's also very much about being practical about making it and about selling it which i think is uh very useful to have as an indie developer where he like he wants his games to sell and he wants to make games that people play and pay money for um and he's also someone that both ted and i trust to be able to um do something good in a timely manner so that's why he's on the launcher. Not that any of the other devs can't. It's just that, you know, he's yeah. one where, like, we know we can trust this guy to do something, uh, you know, do something good in time and, um, 
yeah, so that's that's uh, that's kind of why Nate is on the project. Yeah, it's like uh, I was going to draw the comparison of how you guys kind of have similar uh, career arcs. Maybe yours mm-hmm. went a little higher, quicker, but uh, the the fact that Sagebrush is essentially like a walking simulator horror kind of game, uh, which is what you kind of started off with too. And I, I think I bought Sagebrush either on your recommendation or like because I met him through you somehow vicariously. And yeah, that, and then the natural transition he went to, you know, I'm going to go make a boomer shooter like everybody else now, but yeah, I, I actually yeah. asked him after I played Sagebrush, I was like, was this directly influenced by the moon sliver at all? <laughs> which is one of my older games because there's a bunch of similarities in like how it's made and how it progresses and stuff. He's like, no, I hadn't played it yet. So <laughs> we just happened to, like I said, I think we think very similarly in uh, how we approach game development and games. I had actually the exact same question for you and him. Oh, really? I, I recently played through the min- the moon sliver and I, I haven't played Sagebrush, but I saw his interview about that and it, did look very there was a cohesiveness between those two games i think there's a lot of similarities even just in like the the narrative setup and how it's how it like uh sets up a certain location that you're trying to get into like i was like oh was was this you know did he play the moon sliver and god but no he just had the same idea (laughs) arguably did it better well, this might be the moment to just go ahead and dive into Moon Sliver a little bit, and then I'll okay. bring it back to the hunt too. But I yeah, played the Moon Sliver and I played Sage. Rush. I actually played Sage Rush first. Okay. Um, I, I will say that uh, they're both games that are centered around sort of like a cult like setting, isolated. You know, you're alone, kind of visiting an area where something has happened before you got there. You find pages and little, you know, in his game audio snippets too, and that kind of reveal what happened. Mm-hmm. And in, in Sagebrush, you're trying to kind of get where the cult leader had a bunker sort of situation and you find out about yourself and what happened there. And in the Moon Sliver, you have uh, – actually, it would be better if you explain it, how, how you go into the, the mountain. Yeah. Um, so the Moon Sliver is kind of based on you exploring this island um, where there's nobody else, but there have obviously been people there just not too long ago. And you're exploring it and seeing non-diegetic bits of narrative pop up. So in other words, they're not, for the most part, they're not notes. There are a few notes. Um, But mostly you're walking around and sort of text is fading on screen. And that text is representing conversations and stuff that happened there. Um, And way back when, it's been years now since I made that game, but uh, I was really interested in the idea of making a game narrative that was sort of um, interactive but not in the traditional way of like there's gameplay uh, it was so like the moon sliver was supposed to kind of be like you're walking around in a book if that makes mm-hmm. sense um, which there's kind of issues with that idea you know now in hindsight but so yeah you're walking around and exploring, getting all these pieces of narrative, and um, from the beginning of the game, it tells you your uh, once night has fallen, you're supposed to go into the mountain. There's there's a mountain with a door, like a, a passage into it. Yeah. Um, 
So as you're walking around and exploring all this, it's gradually getting darker and getting more stormy. And once night has finally fallen, you go into the mountain and that is sort of your, um, it's, it's ties everything that you've read together. It's sort of like your, your ending and you figure out who you are and like what everything means and stuff. And this is kind of something, it kind of begins there for you and, it's something that I see a lot, but the, the sort of Lovecraftian descent into darkness ending where it's just like madness is overtaken and you just walk until you are done with the game essentially. Yeah. And was that something that you kind of came up with on your own or was it planned that you would end? Cause many of your games sort of end like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working on one now that's <laughs> pro- pretty much going to end like that too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a- I guess I have a, um, a rut I'm stuck in. <laughs> um, uh, oh, go ahead. No, I, I, I wanted to interject the thing that it brought to my mind, and I don't play a lot of narrative games, mm-hmm. but it brought uh, actually Doom 3 to mind. Not the okay. entirety of Doom 3, but the first level where you're kind of doing a similar thing. You're walking to this place, the science lab, and you're mm-hmm. picking up information along the way, and it's building this tension. It's building this sort of, uh-oh, something's happened. We don't know what it is yet. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I thought that came to my mind. I don't know if uh, that was intentional or anything. but wasn't intentional, but I mean, I, Doom 3 is definitely in my subconscious. Mm. So, um, Yeah, I can't remember, actually, if I started out with the ending or not like it's been too long i can't remember what order that went in because i all of my games are really really sort of iterative process i don't i don't have them all planned out and then just make them it's like as i'm making them the plan is changing and things are adapting um so yeah i can't remember if that was always going to be the ending or not or if it just turned out to feel like oh this this is a natural way to um to kind of tie everything together yeah, I think that it's pretty natural. I mean, like any any game, like and we'll go through the the other ones too. But what what do you do once you figured out the end of the mystery? So it's just like, well, just like we'll just walk until you're crazy yeah. and nothing else happens. <laughs> yeah. oh, back to the hunt, I guess. Uh, one of the other direct or sorry developers that you picked up was uh, Torpal Duke, who's definitely my favorite of the Dread X crew. Um, mm-hmm. no, he's been in every collection, I think. I think yeah. he's the only one. <laughs> yeah, so no disrespect to anybody else. I love you all, but like Torpal Duke was all, like, from Dread X 1, like, Hand of Doom, like, this is the this is the fucking game. I want to play the rest of this game is immediately what I said. Mm-hmm. And I've been trying to harass him to do that ever since, but uh, <laughs> what, what's your relationship with him at this point? Um... Um, mostly, mostly work, just that we, we've worked in the same, uh, in the, like, we, we don't really talk outside of working on Dread X stuff, but not, not because we don't like each other, but it's just mostly it's a work relationship. I think we're both very busy on doing stuff. Like, he obviously does a lot of games, um, and I, just, despite what my, output would look like do work on a lot of games <laughs> um but yeah he's he's uh just he, he's very imaginative about things every game he's done for dread x is something different 
in some yeah. interesting new concept. I really enjoyed uh, Acid Trip Blues Clues. Uh, yeah. It was a mind fuck. I played that for like a Halloween stream, and I was dressed up like uh, like Glenn Danzig with like eyeliner and all this kind of shit on, and mm-hmm. I didn't realize what I was getting into. So I'm dressed up for fucking horror. I'm like, all right, I'm gonna play mm-hmm. the Dread X collection, and then I'm in this like Blues Clues world. Yeah. <laughs> then everything is spoopy. <laughs> it was fun. I really enjoyed that shit, man. But to get back uh, on track a little bit, his game uh, of the you know the obvious stuff, the collection so far anyway, it looks to be like the most obviously like kind of hunting oriented one. I mean, you know, Black Black, Black Relic is the name of the, the game for mm-hmm. people listening. And it's, you know, like deer horns and a arrow shot through its head. So it's like very on the nose as far as the hunt goes. And oh, there's one that's even bit. more on the nose, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the the one Kira's working on, which is literally okay. a, a hunting game, <laughs> like a like a um, it's supposed to be sort of like a um, off-brand Cabela's meets Pokemon Snap sort of weird mashup. <laughs> so, tell us about both of those actually a little bit. Um, so Black Relic is still kind of early along. I've only uh, I've only seen sort of alpha. Uh, test builds of that so far um and that's actually something that uh next week we're going to be doing the the big meet up with him to mm-hmm. go over the game and everything because he got a bit of a late start because he was working on something else um but it is going to be sort of re4 like uh it's the i think that's the, yeah it's the only one that isn't in first person um and he's pattering it patterning it around resident evil 4 in a lot of ways that same idea of like fighting a horde of crazed well they're not i don't think they're villagers but you know fighting a horde of crazed people uh okay. with an old over the shoulder shoulder camera and having it be a lot about mob control um and not as much about like twitch reflexes uh and then kira's game is um Octana 64 uh, which is it's literally it's like a hunt it's a hunting game it's basically squirrel stapler except that he had the smart idea of not making it an actual hunting simulator and just kind of making it a game where you shoot animals <laughs> so he's going to get far less comments from angry people who don't know how to sneak <laughs> so which is probably smart of him um but yeah you you have to hunt down diseased animals and take pictures of them. And I don't want to say much more about that because that game is a very wild ride. I'm very excited for people to see that. Um, Cause it, yeah. Yeah. I don't want to say too much more about it. I, uh, I grew up playing like Cabela's big game hunter on the Wii. I had the mm-hmm. rifle and everything. So I would turn all the lights off and get up on the couch. Like I was in a tree stand nice. <laughs> and play those games a lot. And so I, I promised myself the next time I talked to you, I would tell you my squirrel stapler story. Okay. So I have to preface this saying that, um, uh, I often go for runs in the middle of the night. Like, uh, mm-hmm. it's just a, I live in a pretty safe neighborhood and the, the things that are safe in my neighborhood other than myself are the fucking bunny rabbits. And it's literally infested. They're everywhere. They run out in front of cars and we can't, we're not allowed to kill them because it's like neighborhood thing. Mm. Uh, so I play squirrel stapler in the middle of the night and I'm like, okay, I'm finished with that. I'm going to go for a nice little run. And I, I've been shooting squirrels and you did a really good job with the sound design in that, just the rustling noises and everything. Mm-hmm. And so I'm 
outside in the middle of the night in my shorts and I'm running and these fucking bunny rabbits keep making these rustling noises. And <laughs> you like permanently fucked up my brain. And I, I like, I'm never doing that again. But <laughs> <laughs> like, Oh no, it's squirrels. It's a squirrel bear. <laughs> I kept thinking that like the whole time it was just like triggered me. I'm like, fuck, mm-hmm. what is going on here? And I'm like, I just ran it home as fast as I fucking could. <laughs> I, re- I really liked how that game made you listen mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. use your senses in a way that, and it, it kind of trained you as it went through each day because, you know, it starts off pretty easy, a little bit harder. And by day four, I really struggled with day four. I'm on day five now. I haven't finished it. Okay. But, uh, yeah. The ending's the best part. I, I, uh, please, go ahead. Oh, there, there are definitely some issues with that game, mostly, mostly due to not uh, having a lot of time to... Um, well, some did not having a lot of time to kind of um, tweak it, which hopefully will be fixed whenever uh, there's a standalone release. But mm-hmm. also because um, I made a few miscalculations. In one of them, like I already covered, is that I probably should not have made it a actual hunting sim with like where it like cares about your footstep noise and you have to hide in bushes and stuff like that because. A lot of people don't play it like that, and while I intended the first few days to kind of teach you how to sneak, mm. uh, to prep you for when threats start to show up, that didn't end up working because people found that they could just sort of dash after the squirrels and, like, you know, bunny hop after the... Well, you can't hop bunny hop in it, but, you know, um, and just shoot them, and then they get to day... What is it? I think it's... Is it day three or four where the squirrel bears show up? I think it's day I four. It's three. It changed during development, so I'm trying to remember which one it actually shipped. Um, but then they show up, and then you're expected to be like hiding in bushes and moving quietly and listening and stuff. And so many people just were blindsided by that. Um, Interesting, yeah, that which is sense. unfortunate because yeah, it's that was the idea is that you're supposed to, and I could have done more with this. Uh, with with the whole sound element and i probably will try to do more with it with standalone release of making it so that you're hearing you know you're using your ears a lot you're really attuned to what you're hearing and then um you start hearing like weird stuff too so you're never sure if like what you're hearing is a threat or not Mm. um which i wasn't able to do too much with it you know in the uh in the collection version but and then um you know, that the ending kind of, well, I won't spoil You haven't finished it, so I won't spoil the, the ending. <laughs> well, one of the great things about it, and this is just from a general game design standpoint, mm-hmm. is just that message on the wall, God is coming in five days. I think if that wasn't there, I probably wouldn't have played it. I wouldn't have gone past day one or two. Because I would oh, have really? been like, okay, this is a, a hunting simulator, a weird one, help you. Mm-hmm. But... <laughs> That five yeah. days thing was like, okay, I can do five days of this to see mm-hmm. what happens. And that was a great way to set it up. And just so simple. And it's something I never really thought of before as a, as a game designer. Mm. That, you know, you just put that one thing in there and it made yeah. it connect. Yeah. It's supposed to make you kind of feel like... You're supposed to be like, oh crap, something's going to yeah. happen. <laughs> and I don't know what that is, but it's real 
sinister sounding. <laughs> it also I, uh, it puts a limit on how long you have to hunt for. Like the yeah. hunting is fun, but you know, I, I it's, don't know if I could. That was another days. mistake is that there's probably too many days for the amount of content. It's kind of a similar mistake I made with Pony Factory, where it's like the game's actually too long for the amount of content it has. Because I'm so used to thinking in terms of like making a standalone game to ship that with both of them, I'm like, well, like, okay, this is the amount of, you know, content and playtime I need. And it ended up being too much both times because they're part of a collection of like, you know, half a dozen other games. <laughs> but uh, speaking, go ahead. Oh, uh, but yeah, all of this is stuff that I'm hoping to address whenever I do, uh, whenever there's a standalone release of it, you know, doing stuff to try and mitigate all these issues. I wanted to draw the comparison. I mean, we were talking about Torpal Duke and also you work with Airdorf a bit too. Mm -hmm. So the Earl's Day Off was Mm -hmm. very similar to the Pony, or sorry, not not the Pony Factory, fuck. The the uh, Squirrel Stapler. Uh And, you know, of course you have this whole thing with like the, it's a duty that, you know, doing outdoorsman shit and you're kind of progressing through the story and everything. But the the dead wife, I, I can't believe more people don't talk about the dead wife thing where it's just like moving around in the fucking room and <laughs> yeah. that's like the most terrifying thing I, I know god's coming and i know there's this corpse in here that keeps you know you're supposed to put all your uh squirrel parts or you know, pelts i guess on her mm-hmm. what what the fuck were you thinking uh i have no idea <laughs> people people ask me how did you come up with this idea i'm like there really isn't a story the story was just i was going for a walk brainstorming what game to do and a squirrel ran across the path because I li- I live in Northwest PA, so I'm in you know I'm in the woods. And you a squirrel thought ran across I'd like the to path. S- staple that squirrel to my wife. Yeah, well, it, I was just sort of like, <laughs> ha, yeah, that would be a funny concept if you have to, because the the theme was Lovecrafting. So yeah. I was thinking, you know, that could be Lovecraft or it could be crafting a love. And I kind of figured everyone else was going to do Lovecraft theme. That was too, you know, that was too obvious. So I was try- thinking in terms of the like crafting a love thing. So I saw the squirrel. I'm like, ha! What if you just staple the squirrel? The squirrel stay perfect. It's great. <laughs> There's our game design. And then I um, bounced the idea off my wife, and she hated it. And she was like, "What is wrong with you?" And I'm like, "Okay, that's a good sign. I'll run with this." <laughs> I foresee that several times as we go through this conversation, there's going to be some me asking you what, what happened? Like who hurt you kind of questions. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, I guess we could transition since we already brought up the pony factory. Um, I, I kind of agree with you in that it's a little bit like too long it, yeah. because there's no like real progression. I mean, you have like one weapon the whole time. I'm used yeah. to playing your games where it's, you know, kind of doom or quake like where, you know, you find a new weapon and that's what the progression, that's how you get stronger and better. So yeah. in hindsight, what's your feeling on that game? Yeah, I mean, it was too... I mean, the fact that half of the game is literally uh, level reuse probably should have been assigned to me that it was too long. But that was the first ever game I'd made in a sort of game jam setting. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything else I've ever made has always been like... uh, Like, you know, something that I'm intending to, to be a complete experience that someone would pay money for. Even back when I wasn't selling games, like that was the mindset I had. It's like it's got to be, you know, something someone would be willing to put their money and time into. But the problem is, um, in the setting of it being a game jam and it being like, how many were in the, um, the first Dread X collection? 
If I'm was not mistaken, 10? it was 10. Yeah, I think it was 10. So there's 10 games in that collection. Yeah. Um, and I don't even remember how long the Pony Factory is. Like, maybe an hour? Maybe a bit like less that. than an hour? Um, but what I wasn't thinking in terms of is that is like people are playing these games to play it for like 20 minutes and see a cool concept and then move on to the next one. They're not coming back to this, you know, or they're not sitting down and having this game be their, the only one they're playing in the session. It's like, they're going to try and sit down and play like, Oh, I'm going to play the dread X collection, or at the very least, I'm going to play several of the games in the dread X collection, not, you know, and so when I was making the pony fact, like I, tend to be uh, fairly pragmatic about game design. So I was like, well, there's a certain target I want to hit of feeling like, okay, this is a complete, relatively complete experience. Not complete, but a relative, like it's, it's taking enough time to play this that it doesn't feel like it's just sort of a tech demo or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Dread X one was only seven days. Uh, That was the time. So it was like uh, a very, uh, short time limit and I stuck to that very closely um, like that game was was completed and start, started and completed in seven days um, so at you know there was a point where it was like well there's this target I want to hit and I just don't have enough time to make yeah what's up you just said I remember it was seven games and seven like seven days and seven nights it, that's I don't oh, know why. That seven devs. Came, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Um, so it was like, there's this target I want to hit. Um, and I just don't have enough time to design more levels for this. So we're going to, um, so I'm, I'm just going, I'm, I'm going to reuse the level geometry and have you backtrack through after you get this thing. And I'll just do new enemy placements. Oh, and it's also that like the pacing I had, I had designed the pacing to be a bit too long also. Like, a um, because you can't like the way the way enemies are introduced and the way encounters are ramped up. Um, I hadn't managed to introduce the final enemy and give them enough time to like have several interesting encounters with them by the end. So it's like, okay, well, I need more space to give more encounters with these guys. Um, so you know, backtrack. But then the problem is that um, even though there's a new enemy and then, you know, that's taking, that's some content for the, the, the rest of the time. And I did the color switch. So it's like, there's a bit of visual difference too. And that's keeping interest up. Um, the problem is interest is waning in the weapon area where it's like, you've only had the one weapon throughout the whole game. You really, it really needed to be like, um, you get another weapon at the end. Uh, and then going back through, like you have another weapon to use, which might be something I do for again, that standalone release. Um, and yeah, essentially I just, I just, and same thing with squirrel stapler, although I tried to not make squirrel stapler too long, um, but failed. (laughs) And it was a similar thing where it's like, I have all these, I have these, uh, scares I want to do and I have the, like these points I want to hit and they need to be spaced out enough so that they don't feel clustered to get like, having the the corpse show up in the woods for instance yeah. it's like okay well that has to that can't happen on the same day that the corpse has moved around in the house because it's one-upping the corpse moving around in the house um 
And also, it's going to, you know, if you go back to, if the corpse has shown up in the woods, and then you go back and the corpse has moved in the house, it's like, whatever, it showed up in the woods, I know that. It's not, you know, you've lost the impact of the, the corpse moving around in the house then. So it's like, I had to space all those out, I had to space out, um, okay, first day, you're hunting squirrels, second day, you're hunting the big squirrel, and then third day, you is it third day that they're introduced? I can't, I, I can't remember so, yeah. when they're, but it's like all these yeah. things. To, oh, uh, ghost squirrels show up at one point also too, um, and essentially I just uh, it 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 was spaced. Everything was spaced out a bit too much, um, and I think for that one, I'm not sure if the solution for that is going to be to decrease the number of days. Or if I'm going to try and fill out those days with a little more stuff happening. I definitely didn't do nearly enough with creepy stuff happening in the woods and stuff like that. <clears throat> I respect the fact that you're very like self-critical and you want everything to be perfect because you're an artist and everything. But mm-hmm. there, there are many good things about these games too. Like We don't have to just shit on your whole that's, catalog. Yeah, that's true. This is just how I like... Um, I always want... You know, um, I want to learn from mistakes I make. Yeah. But yes, you're right. I've spent a lot of time talking about just like the issues with the games. Um, oh, and we were on Pony listening. Factory, not on Squirrel go, Stapler. <laughs> everyone go buy all these games. They're all good, and regardless of what David says. <laughs> yeah. Well, I also don't want to spend a lot of time being like, oh, here's this thing I did that I think is really good. Yeah. It's like, you know, it starts to sound like you're self-filating after <laughs> at a point. Well, that's what me and Mike are here for. We'll blow you, and you can just lay back okay. and enjoy it. Yeah, that um, sounds good. There's also the the idea that an artist sometimes doesn't know when they should stop working on something. Yeah. Like it's finished. yes. So I I felt like they were pretty complete, cohesive experiences. I haven't quite finished Squirrel Stapler yet, but mm-hmm. uh, I'm looking forward to it for sure. And day four was definitely hard. I had to go back several times, but I did it, and that was actually exciting and fun because. Mm-hmm. I had to learn those cues of the, the sounds in the forest. Yeah. I think it depends on the person a lot. I've had like people, most, most of the comments I get about non dusk games at this point are about squirrel stapler, Mm. not Mm -hmm. pony factory. No one remembers pony factory. Um, But, and it's interesting because most of the criticism I get is also about squirrel stapler. So it's like, it's a very divisive game that some people are like, you know, you see in like the Steam reviews or whatever, they're like, this game is garbage. I hate it so much. <laughs> but then it's also the game that everyone remembers. You know, everyone memes mm-hmm. about God is coming and um, yeah. stapling squirrels to your way, you know. Uh, <laughs> Pony Factory, not... I, I get very few comments about that game. <laughs> I, I'll transition back to Pony Factory, but mm-hmm. Mike, did you... or Have you been wearing the orange hunting cap while you were playing Squirrel Stapler? <laughs> like, is, is that part of it? Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> Not intentionally. Fully immersive experience. <laughs> keeping the ears warm. But. So, uh, some of the good things that I really enjoyed about Phony Factory. Actually, mm-hmm. you and I had this discussion, I think, in the uh, Realms Deep Discord a bit. But So, there's some linearities here with several different stories that the Pony Factory relates to. Excuse the cat. She's, she's being ornery today. Oh, that's fine. Um, so... There's the old uh, creepypasta th- story called the Rainbow Factory, mm-hmm. and did, and you, I believe you said that you had no relation to that whatsoever. Yeah, that wasn't a okay. that wasn't a thing at all. I did. I am aware of it. 
yeah. of the story. I was aware of it, but yeah, it wasn't an inspiration necessarily. There is also currently a like a Doom Total Conversion game that I think is coming out later this year. And forgive me, Metal Neon, like put it in the comments. I forgot the name of it, but they were showing it to me and and I was like, so what's the plot here? And it's like my little pony kind of ponies with like all this crazy voice acting and wild action. It's a lot more of a zany experience. But I'm like, what was the inspiration? It's like, well, it's based on this creepypasta called the Rainbow Factory. So they're both factories about you know, yeah. ponies. <laughs> like, and I'm just like that. What is the uh, what's the common denominator here? Yeah. What's going on? Why well, are there so many simultaneous stories about pony factory? Yeah. Um. So the the way um Pony Factory came about mm-hmm. uh it that was not the like the original concept for that was just that well you know Ted approached me and was like hey I'm or no actually um Mason I think gave Ted my name so mm-hmm. like Ted didn't didn't think about approaching me and Mason was like hey maybe ask David and I was like yes I will make a game in a week for money um, <laughs> so uh. Uh, he he was like so. Our th- what was the what was the theme? No, that one was like make your own PT, not yeah. gameplay. But it was like make a playable teaser for a game you'd want to make. So I was collecting a few concepts I'd wanted to play with into one game because the uh, the spirit of the prompt was like you know you're, this is a teaser for what could be a bigger game. Um, and so I'm like, okay, what are some stuff that I've wanted? What's some stuff I want? I've wanted to do. Um, one of those was I want to do something with sort of urban decay, or you know, not necessarily, but like factory industrial de- decay. Um, I'm really obsessed with that sort of aesthetic. Um, so I wanted to have it set in some sort of abandoned industrial environment. Second thing is that for years I'd wanted to play around with high contrast black and white in a game. Um, ever since I played Betrayer, really, and I was just blown away by how that game feels in black and white, I've always wanted to mess around with that sort of style of high contrast black and white. So I'm like, okay, I want to do that too. Um, and then at the time I was also thinking a lot about um, the way... Half-Life 1 combat with the Heku Marines plays out. Mm-hmm. Um, H-E-C-U Marines, however you want to say it. But, you know, with the Marines, um, where it's very mobile, and especially if you're using the machine gun, there's a lot of, like, you strafing and spraying at a guy um, as he's running for cover and stuff like that. Um, you know, it's very it's very dynamic and mobile combat. Same thing in Half-Life 2, uh, to a certain extent. Um and that's something I also wanted to play around with is that idea of like, um, you're not going, it's not quite the same thing as dusk where it's like you go into a room and there's an enemy there and you just sort of lay down fire on them and then they'll die. And the dynamicism comes from there being a bunch of different enemies. I wanted to play with something where it's like the enemies are very mobile and move around a lot. So the combat field is changing a bunch. Um, so those were all the original ideas for it. And you can see most of those in the pony, you know, obviously the combat is not, you know, the AI is nowhere near half-life AI or anything like that, but it's like, you know, it's that idea of a very dynamic combat field and, you know, it has the black and white and uh, the industrial decay setting and stuff. So those were all the original idea. And then I had to figure out what is, what what is the setting and 
story that bring these all together. And originally it was going to be sort of this nebulous, like sort of surreal. Oh, this is just a, a place with like, like this is just like an endless factory right. uh, that you go into and it's just filled with weird things that don't make any sense. And I think also this came to me while I was taking walks. I should probably stop taking walks, but <laughs> um, keep, please keep taking walks. <laughs> but uh, the, I wanted to do something with a bit more of a sense of humor to it. Cause mm-hmm. one of the big things I took away from dusk and one thing that, one of the many things that makes it a huge departure from everything I did before dusk um, is that dusk has a sense of humor to it, but it's also scary. And, you know, there's enemies like the, like the horror where it's like, I designed that enemy to be sort of like, is it scary or is it hilarious? And that's something that for a lot of people worked really well, where they're just like, I'm terrified of this thing, but it's ridiculous looking. Um, And that kind of taught me maybe, you know, my sense of humor is weird and dark enough. Maybe making things that I think are darkly humorous parses as, like, grotesque and terrifying to other people. Um, So I decided I wanted to have something a little more weird and goofy going on with it. A little more iconic, I'd say, you know, something that sets it apart. And I don't remember how the pony idea came about i think it was just the the concept of merging something traditionally very cutesy and magical like magical ponies and then merging that with just like industrial hell environment and having it be like yeah they use this factory to to like like uh change humans into magical ponies but they're just like evil and horrible uh which i thought was really funny like a, a really dark funny idea to go with and uh, I think that m- kind of came about from reading, oh, what is that Clive Barker story? It's the Clive Barker story about the woman who's able to, with her mind, like change people's bodies. And mm-hmm. there's one part where she's super mad at this guy. So she like crunches his body up into this horrifying looking, like, like non-distinct animal of some sort. And I thought that was just like horrifying and you know, that's sort of the the idea of you're making people into ponies with, I don't even know, like, how do you make a person's skull into a pony skull? Who knows? But it's probably horrible. Uh, <laughs> so that's how that came up. Like, the original idea was not pony-related. Yeah. Uh, but the pony-related stuff came from, you know, all that iteration. It's one of the few games that I've played in the past, you know, like, since I've been an adult, really, that made me audibly scream, <laughs> of horror. like you you do a really excellent job of playing with the lighting i mean that's kind of through a lot of your work anyway mm, but I like, like lighting, the, yeah. the electric uh ponies are just like because you don't see them and then they just like spark up in the darkness and i'm like oh fuck and i'm like yeah. Yeah, jumping out of oh, my I f- seat i forgot about that that was doom 3 inspired mm-hmm. I, that's another thing i'd always want to play around with is like uh the doom 3 flashlight situation yeah um which yeah i like in the parts in doom 3 where you have to you have to like track imps and stuff based on their fireballs illuminating things and stuff in the dark. So yeah, that's basically what that is. They're basically Doom 3 imps where it's like you have to have your flashlight down to be able to shoot them. So then you can only track them through like your own muzzle flash or the light from sparks hitting the wall or them getting ready to throw, you know, 
their magic pony, whatever it is, electricity, pony powers, you know, something. Um, yeah. Uh, and it was, that was fun to play with, to do all the lighting. I love playing around with lighting um, and doing cool stuff with lighting and shadows. Pretty happy with how that turned out overall. Cause they'll yeah. like, like when they um, wind up to throw, sometimes you get this really like cool shadow thrown onto the opposite wall and stuff for just a second. It's really cool. The uh, really flashlight situation got a lot of negative feedback from what I remember. Yeah, it did. Uh, because you had to choose like flashlight or gun. And yeah. I was surprised. I was surprised you used that just because, but it's a smaller game. It's a little, maybe less, uh, you know, ambitious as a, as a product. Yeah. So I I've, thought it, it worked very nicely in there. I've always liked the doom three flashlight dichotomy, but I know for a while, um, most people hated that, which is weird because then BFG edition came out and then the, public discourse kind of shifted to it being like oh this kind of ruined the game because it took out the flashlight mechanic i'm like i've always said the flashlight mechanic was good (laughs) so you you did give people the the fact that the bad guys lit up Mm -hmm. as they were about to shoot you so that i felt like that was a great way to balance that problem you know Mm. you give them the problem but you also gave the solution yeah yeah, because you're not supposed to be able to just plain old not see bad guys. It's supposed right. to be like, it's interesting now because you have to rely on diegetic light sources. For but it. it's still scary. It still builds that yeah. tense atmosphere. So good good balancing act there. Thank you. Sure. Also, like I just love the nail gun. I mean, you're to me, yeah. like you're, in my opinion, as far as shooters go, you're the best gun guy. Like I just oh, always love everything you make. I mean, I, if I were, you know, if I had a game and I was like, oh, I really need a, an expert on who to make the coolest fucking gun for. I'd be like, oh, well, David, he's the guy who made the spinning shotgun and like, a, you know, <laughs> that kind of shit. Mm-hmm. So that gun is really cool and satisfying. I'm disappointed that there wasn't a little bit more to it. But I mean, again, mm-hmm. you maybe if the game had been shorter, it wouldn't have mattered. Um, but it's just a cool fucking concept for a weapon. And did you like want to make a nail gun? Was that like part of it? Uh, yeah, we're, we're, bolt gun. Because it not, was yeah, not nail gun, not like quake. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah, it's um supposed to be kind of part of the fest. Um, people pointed out later, and I didn't even realize this, which is stupid because I should have. But they're like, oh, it's like the gun they use for slaughtering cattle. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, I guess that is really similar. Yeah, but my thought had just been like, I wanted to make a really industrial look, like something that could be like a tool. Um, right. But, you know, it's it's kind of that idea of it's some sort of pneumatic device that just fires bolts super fast. Um, and it's based on like, a, yeah, it's it's based on nail guns, like it's sort of designed to look like a nail gun. Um, but, yeah, I just thought it was a cool idea to have this really industrially weapon in the industrial game. Yeah, in my mind, I was thinking, like, is this guy wearing an air compressor on his back? Um, yeah. To, yeah. Like. <laughs> I think it was Fallout 3, they had the, the railroad spike. Yeah, gun. the railroad yeah. spike gun. That was fun. <laughs> so, from here, uh, I'm going to transition to more of your stuff that I think people will know less, but as my opinion, like, this is some of the coolest shit you've done. Oh, okay. So, uh, We'll talk about the grandfather first because it's definitely the out outlier. Oh wow! This may yeah. be the first time I've ever talked about the grandfather on a oh. uh, st- on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. So what the fuck is that? Okay, so 
Um, the grandfather happened while I was working on A Wolf in Autumn. Mm-hmm. Um, and this guy called Michael Patrick Rogers approached me. And he'd previously made a game called The Lady. Um, he's got a he's got a very apparently uh, set in stone naming convention. We have the grandfather and the it's a very Robert Eggers naming convention. Yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of just the witch, the lighthouse, the Northman. <laughs> um, so he'd he'd made a game called The Lady, which I'd heard of, and at that time, um, well, I guess I guess this was sort of starting to get into what was colloquially how come i can't pronounce that yeah that word is known as the indie apocalypse and this is sort of when the bubble burst on on steam so to speak and people were starting to realize that you couldn't just because your game was on steam or gog or itch or places well mostly steam and gog it didn't mean it was going to make money um, this is where, you know, discoverability issues were becoming very much in the mainstream discourse. Um, but at that time, I was still kind of in the mindset of, if this is a game I've seen, you know, going going past on Steam or on GOG or whatever, that probably means it was relatively successful. Because for a time, that was the case. Back more in, like, you know, 2012 or 2013, like if you saw a game on steam, it meant that game was big for the most part. Um, you saw a game on GOG, you know, if it, it meant that game was like a higher tier above. So anyway, I'd heard of the lady, which to me parsed as like, okay, this d- game did pretty well, probably better than any of mine. That was not true as it turned out, but <laughs> uh, he approached me and was like, Hey, I'm making this game called the grandfather. Um, and I thought it'd be cool if we teamed up since we both do weird artsy games. I'm like, okay, sure. What's the, you know, what, what's the deal? And it's like, okay, we're going to collab on this. We do a rev share and you know, it'll, it'll be great. Um, and I was like, okay, sure. Yeah. I'm working on my own game. It'd be cool to have two releases. Um, at this point I, uh, I was doing game dev full time. So that was my job and, I'm, and money was starting to look a bit tight. So I'm like, yeah, let's get as many releases out there as we can so I can get some more money. Um, And the design that he'd had for the grandfather was basically nothing like what ended up shipping. Um, He'd been working with another programmer on it, or another developer, um, and I guess they just weren't seeing eye to eye, uh, so he wanted to switch to someone else. And... um, very early in development, I threw some design ideas around, but it became apparent very quickly that it was not going to be a collaborative relationship so much as it was going to be he tells me what he wants and I make it, um, which is not something I would do now, for sure. But at that time, you know, I I hadn't made Dusk. You know, I was, I was like this bottom-of-the-barrel, you know, guy on who would... The, the best thing that had happened is I'd managed to get a game on Steam, and so that had sort of started my career, but I was still, you know, scraping for money with sales and stuff like that. So for me, it was like, okay, this is just what I'm doing. Um, so almost that entire game was his design. There are a few things yeah. that I threw in, and there were things like uh, the umbilical cord part. 
um, making that look sort of like slimy and rotting, but have the light at the very end that you're going toward. If I remember, that was my idea. Having the house be on fire uh, toward the end was my idea. So I did contribute some stuff, but for the most part, the relationship was um, this was Michael's game, and I was just developing it. Um, yeah. Which is, I'm not saying that as like a, oh, this, you know, I was done wrong in this case. That's just how it worked. Um, and I was fine with that. It wasn't really a game that I wanted to make. Uh, it wasn't, you know, it was very much his vision. And it, um, I appreciated how weird and just uncomfortable he was able to make things. But I never really understood the vision for the game completely. And there are definitely a lot of things in it where it's just like we were patching over we were patching over patches over design issues with the puzzles and just trying to be like let's just try and make this something that's sort of a game and move on to the next one uh, um and so then that came out i think wolf and autumn came out first i can't remember uh it came out around the same time as a wolf and autumn and no one cared really about it uh because Honestly, neither of us had much pull. You know, ne- neither of us really could sell a game on our own. It was, we were really relying on the Steam algorithm to do it. Yeah. And uh, same, kind of same thing with Wolf and Autumn, where I just, you know, it, it kind of got lost in the algorithm, as a lot of games did and still do. Um, and so that was, you know, the experience of making that game, I would not say was a positive one. Not that it was like, not that he was unpleasant to work. He's, he's a weird guy. I mean, he, let's Clearly. get that out there. He's definitely a weird guy. I don't even think he works in games anymore. Um, he's, I think he's like a, uh, does a lot of extra work in movies. I think is his thing. He did a short film too at one point, but anyway, um, he's a weird guy. It wasn't like he was unpleasant to work with. It's just that, you know, he was on his own wavelength and I wasn't really on it. It wasn't really my game. I was just kind of devoting my time to this, hoping to get something out of the royalties. Um, I'm still proud of some of the work we did on it. I don't think the design holds up very well, but I think some of the um, some of the art is really cool. Some of the like we we were trying to make it look sort of like a lot of paper cutouts moving around, um, and you know some of the visuals are still neat and stuff like that. Uh, and I, I don't think I, I may, I don't think I ever got any money off of it. Actually, it's free uh, now. I might have gotten maybe like one tiny royalty payment or something. But then, yeah, at some point, he just told me he was going to make it free. And at that point, I was just like, "That's fine, sure." You know, I'm not going to yeah. start a fight over it. You know, it's yeah. it's certainly a very interesting game, and in, in that I think the narrative is pretty cool. Um, mm. And the art, obviously, the puzzles themselves are just kind of like whatever. Like I don't really know. I don't yeah. know what I've accomplished here, kind of thing. Um, yeah, we were just kind of. Um, I say we, but it, I mean, it's it was mostly him. Although I could have fought him on decisions. I knew some of the decisions were bad, and I just didn't fight him. Um, would that have helped? I don't know. I just kind of let it happen. It was like, oh, I know this puzzle isn't very. Um, isn't intuitive. very intuitive, yeah. but whatever. I'll just you know, <laughs> um, yeah. The pu- I think I think really we were just trying to fill up game space, 
Like the puzzles don't really have much logic to them uh, other than trying to take time, um, you know, to justify it being a game. <laughs> yeah. Got to pick your battles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of. And, you know, I wasn't in the, I wasn't the happiest at that point. Um, now, I, you know, I, I didn't have to work at Dollar General anymore, which was good, but <laughs> I was definitely starting to feel the pressure of like, you know, the Moon Sliver had done really, really well relatively speaking um for me at that time like that was like the most money i'd ever gotten in my bank account which is crazy because it didn't even sell all that well but it's like we're talking i was you know working part-time at dollar general and before that i was working part-time at a car wash so you know the moon sliver had done well enough that i like quit my job and just went to doing games full-time um and then the music machine did less well and a wolf and autumn did less well even than that and not just less well sales wise but less well reviews wise too so at that point i was just feeling burnt out um because all of these had been done in a very short amount of time also in like a year i think um i really cranked them out really fast and so between you know wolf and autumn kind of flopping and um the grandfather just kind of flopping and not being the most fulfilling artistic experience you know at that point i was just sort of i I was i was just sort of bleh i guess you'd say yeah uh before we go any further i need to say like to address the audience here if you are easily disturbed please tune out now because i'm gonna (laughs) try to dig into some really fucked up shit uh, I don't think that will be the case for most of the people who listen to the show because we talk about fucked up stuff all the time. But th- there's some really uh, – you're a fucked up person, David. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, um, I guess. Yeah, there's, so some, there's some messed up stuff. One of the motifs that the grandfather does carry from a lot of your other work, and I'm, it mm-hmm. may just be coincidence, is the abusive relationship kind of thing. And – that like I mean, they essentially the whole plot of the grandfather for people who haven't played it uh, is you, your wife is an abusive, crazy bitch, and you're trying to get rid of her, but you're like a weak old man and you can't really do anything about it. Yeah. So it's like and a you're just psychological. A head. Yeah. You're just a head floating around trying to get your body parts back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, not, I'm not sure what the metaphor is if there is any, but uh, somebody had something to work out. Well, it's I don't know either. Um, I think so. Michael is a big Eraserhead fan. I love um, Eraserhead. And I think for him, um, D- like Lynch and Eraserhead especially is about weird for weird sake, if that makes sense, which I don't know is necessarily an illegitimate reading of things. Because I think there is a lot of Lynch that is just, it's weird because weird is interesting. Um, but I, I think Michael took that lesson of like I, I make stuff that's weird and there doesn't need to be a deeper meaning behind it because I know that the thing that he talked about mostly with the grandfather was it was about his father and how he felt that um, his his mother destroyed his father and was just a horrible person and it didn't go much deeper than that there wasn't any real deeper meaning to stuff it was just that the story was about this horrible you know basically almost demonic woman abusing this man for no reason. Um, and that was the whole, that that was just, that was, that was the message. Um, now there could have been deeper meaning to things that he just didn't share. Yeah. Um, 
that's very possible. He, he wasn't necessarily the most communicative person. Um, but it was never something that was expressed to me. I'll say. I think that oftentimes in art, I mean, you mentioned Eraserhead already. Um, mm-hmm. You just have something you got to work out, and that's their way of dealing with it. Uh, Eraserhead, yeah. I mean, Lynch has gone on record saying like it was about his anxiety about being a father for the first time. And well, that like and how- also his experience living in, I think it was Pittsburgh, right? Mm-hmm. That's why yeah. there's so much about the place just being like horrible and oppressive, because <laughs> that's how he, he said it was like the most miserable time of his life. Uh but it's kind of the reason part of the reason why I was like happy to have the three of us here is because we all have uh, similar arcs in our life. Right. So uh, Mike is an actual fine artist. Like mm-hmm. he makes beautiful paintings and you are oh, also awesome. a tremendous classically trained musician. Yeah. Uh, and not in any way nearly as cool, but I had a background in wrestling that also did not like become my career arc in life. Mm-hmm. And I think that we all kind of gravitated towards something that allowed us to kind of play with the things that we had been in love with in in the past, but are like, we found a different ride in life. Mm -hmm. And for you, like you've mentioned a lot, how while you're making a lot of these games that we're going to talk about here in a bit, you were unhappy because you're, you know, you essentially you've gone to college at at this point and everything. Mm -hmm. And you're already like this wonderful uh, cellist, if I remember correctly, violinist violinist excuse me and but you're working at fucking dollar tree or dollar general (laughs) car washes and shit so where were you at psychology uh psychologically when game dev became like a part of your life well hmm so college was i'll have to i'll have to start back at college Mm because i've been developing games oh wait there's a message from my wife let me make sure there's not you better not be talking about those games. No, she, she uh, her jaw popped out and she can't chew, but now it's better. Okay. <laughs> Very life. In. Um, anyway, but um, so I'd been making games as a hobby mm-hmm. since I was eleven or twelve, around that time, making With a bit too basic. Um, um, what was that? Were you were your brothers also doing this alongside you? um to a certain not really at that time okay um later on uh johnny sort of started following in my footsteps and then became a much better programmer than i've ever been uh he focused a lot more on the programming end of things and now he's Mm -hmm. you know he's an extremely good accomplished programmer um and but that wasn't until later uh starting out i made stuff in cubasic and basically just wanted to put cool games out that people would play. Um, and I really wanted to someday make an FPS and, you know, and eventually I did do that, although it wasn't in QBasic. <laughs> um, and I drifted away from that. Uh, pr- pr- really in like high school, I sort of stopped doing that. Um, I think I did a little bit of, I did a little bit in visual basic, I even made this rudimentary little 2D physics engine in Visual Basic. But for the most part, in high school, I started concentrating more on writing and music. And music is what I ended up going to college for. Um, Music composition, specifically. Um, Now, in college, my my intention was to be a professor. Um, 
that was sort of my realistic expectation is that I would love to be able to be like a well-known composer, but realistically speaking, I'm probably going to be a professor. Um, Cause in, if you don't know what the classical music world is tiny, um, lacking in money and extremely competitive. So your chances of making even a living off of classical music are not given much less being successful, you know, like, it's like being one of the only genres that is very tied to academia, right? Like so yes. you could be a rock musician and never go to school, but you're not. Yes. Necessarily and that's an entirely separate subject, which is that yeah. like, I am very knowledgeable about classical music. Um, I cannot have discussions with musicians in any other field because we don't know what either each other are talking about. Mm-hmm. Like I have, I know very little about audio engineering, for instance, Andrew, who has never gone to school for music. I don't think Andrew even knows how to read music, but he's one of the most accomplished composers that I know. And he knows more about audio you know, engineering than I will ever know. That was not something you learned. You know, I have a degree in music. I I have half a degree in music composition. I started, I switched when I switched colleges. But um, just the stuff you learn, it's very tailored toward that specific kind of music and that specific world. And the problem is that world is very small. Um, and you don't know that until you get outside of that world. Um and I'll come back to that later because that ties into kind of where I was mentally at the time. It's, you know, you pay tens of thousands of dollars for getting this degree um, in something and then you go out into the world and it's like, this is not actually useful. Or it's like, it's useful, but only in a very limited application. Um, and I'll come back to that. In a second. But basically... Um, when I started, when I went to college after I think the first year I was introduced to game maker and I started making games in game maker and simultaneously I was doing music. That's my actual degree and starting to realize I hated college. Um, I wasn't good at it. I was bad at college. I didn't get, much I loved the social element of college. I loved having, um, you know, all these people. I went to I went to a Christian college to start with, so you were essentially you were surrounded by all of these other Christian people who were all, for the most part, very friendly and outgoing, and we're, we were all on the same worldview wavelength. So for me, that was just like it was awesome socially, but academically, I hated classes. <laughs> Uh, even the music classes, you know, I was very good at the composition part, but then stuff uh, like theory or things like that. I'm just like, what is the point of this? I don't, you know, like this to say nothing of gen eds and stuff. Um, so I, I didn't do that. Well, I did okay in college. I had a middling grade college experience grade wise. Um, but I was spending a lot of time playing games and making games when I should have been not doing that. Um, and at some point it came to pass that I was, I was going to be allowed back to the first college I was going to, but I was going to lose a scholarship, I think. And, uh, I was, there was a teacher there who had kind of taken me under his wing 
and he's like, we're going to schedule out your entire day. It's going to be super, you know, this next semester, it's going to be super, every second of your day is going to be scheduled. And that's, what's going to help you get on the ball and get stuff done. And that is not who I am as a person. And my mom realized that and was like, that is going to kill him. <laughs> like, uh, and she, between that and losing the scholarship and stuff, my mom was like, you're not going back there. You're going to have to, you're going to have to go to Edinburgh university, which is near where we live. So the last two years of college, I went to Edinburgh university, changed my major to, uh, just performance, violin performance. Um, cause they didn't have that much of a composition program at Edinburgh. Um, and did okay. Really at that point I'd realized college was not for me, but I needed to get the degree. I needed to finish it up. Um, I, uh, and then I graduated and I hated college and realized I don't want to be a professor because I hate college. Why would I make college my entire life? Um, and you can't really get a job just anywhere in Northwest PA with a music performance degree in violin. So I just went to work at the car wash, basically. Um, and while I was working at the car wash, I started taking a mail order course in piano tuning, figuring that would be a career outlet that would get me out of you know the car wash. Um, and then at some point, I switched over to working at Dollar General and... Uh, this is all big, long story to say that when I uh, switched over to Unity and made Fingerbones, which was my first Unity game and my first successful game, and the first game of mine that really anybody cares about or remembers, um, I was working a job I hated. My college career had just not really done what I wanted to, um, and there was a lot of bitterness there, I'd say. And that probably informed a lot of how I went about games at first. Like I always think about how it wasn't until making dusk really that I realized how much more life affirming it was to make a game where I was making, making it for people to have fun, not to like hurt them. If that makes sense. Yes. Like I don't like approaching finger, but like all of those games, I was always thinking about like, them as almost attacking the player not like trying not like trying to be like oh i want people to hate this but it's like they're horror games so you know that kind of makes some sense you're trying to make the player feel negative emotions with a horror game um but yeah all of those were sort of like there's there's anger in there um and i think i don't think it's always obvious what that anger is toward in the games, it's just sort of like anger at stuff. Uh, Fingerbones is probably the most obvious one, which I guess we can start with talking about. Um, which you said you've played all of them, right? I've played everything that you have have available to the public that I'm aware yeah. of. Does that include Sumo Revise? No, but I'll play it after this if you send it okay. to me. No, don't. don't. <laughs> That's another story. <laughs> That's a, a collaboration between Johnny, Evan, and I that failed horribly. <laughs> Um, but yeah, Fingerbones was like, yeah, so I played Scratches and I was really struck by this idea of doing, of building tension and stuff through just the narrative implications of things, not through there's a monster chasing you. Um, so I wanted to do a game like that. And 
simultaneously, I've been looking at getting into a 3D game engine for a while, and I'd looked into JMonkey, of all things. I don't even know if that exists anymore. Um, and there were a couple others I did, too. Like, I've been trying to get into 3D game development, and that sounds stupid now, because now you know you just download Unity or Unreal or, some, or Godot or whatever. Um, but there was a point where it was like, if you were an indie developer, you don't work in 3D. In, unless you're going to like license the engine or unless you're going to make a mod. It's like you either you're doing 2D games or you're making your own engine or you're like a studio. Um, but this is when Unity was just starting to pick up speed kind of. Or it had already picked up some speed. It had picked up enough speed that I'd heard of it. So probably it had you know been doing that for a while. Um, and I'm like, I want to try Unity out. And I want to make this sort of game. This seems like a perfect fit. There's not much gameplay. You know, it's it's relatively simple. It's a simple way to learn the engine. So that's what I did, is I made Fingerbones while learning Unity. Um, and the story changed a whole bunch during, uh, during development. But the idea was always that it was going to be a horror game about the horror of the narrative, not about there being threats. And at that point, that was kind of not something that was really around that much. This is when the biggest uh, the biggest horror game out there uh, was Slender. You know, so a lot of mm, a lot of indie devs were doing that sort of deal, where it's like it's a you know, there's a monster, there's a bunch of jump scares or things like that. Um, so I wanted to make something that was deliberately playing with that expectation. And that falls completely flat now because there's been innumerable games that do the same thing of as Fingerbones does at this point. But then it was like, I even considered for a while having the player find a gun to kind of imply that you're going to, there's going to be threats and then having that never be used, which I don't think would have gone over very well if I'd done that. So I'm glad I didn't. Um, but that was the idea behind. And then the, you know, I just wrote a narrative that I thought was, fitting in with this idea of making the horror something more real and tangible than just than than like a video game monster. Mm-hmm. So the horror, you know, spoilers if you haven't played Fingerbones, but the horror in Fingerbones is basically centering around um sadism and child abuse, which uh not sure I'd make a game about that now. That's a bit of a <laughs> rough topic to try and tackle. Uh but it, for whatever reason, it resonated with a lot of people, even though a lot of the writing is really, uh, really try hard. And, um, well, there I'm, I'm self critiquing again, but, uh, yeah. And uh, see, the thing is, I don't have any, I do, for some reason in those games, there's always this theme of, um, uh, dysfunctional relationship of some sort which is weird because i've never really had any of those i had a very good upbringing um i married the first person i ever dated and we have a very happy marriage um i have a very good relationship with my children and you know my brothers and my parents and everything so it's not something that's like something i have to work through but for some reason that's a theme in all the in all those games. Um, I don't really know why. I did know at that time I was trying to make things that were focusing on, you know, all of everything, those four games, uh, Fingerbones, A Wolf and Autumn, The Moon Sliver and The Music Machine are all about 
that same idea of narrative-focused horror. Of it being like, the narrative is what's building the tension and what's make, giving things their context to be horrifying. Um, and I guess in my mind that translates to dysfunctional relationships and in at least three cases, child abuse. Yeah. Or two cases and possibly a third, child abuse. Yeah, that's... You talk. I, I, I think art like allows us to explore those things in a safe mm-hmm. way, right? Like, um, yeah, it's different. It's different for movies versus music versus games and other forms, but they all can have that darker side, and you don't necessarily have to become or you know embody that darkness. You're just saying, yeah. observing it in a way. Yeah, and it's, someone said something that on Twitter of all places, but it, it stuck with me. Whereas, so in reality, I'm, you know, I'm married, I have two children, I'm a Christian, I'm pretty much described as being a human teddy bear by most people. Um, but then I make all this stuff that's like really dark and weird and someone uh, said something like, yeah, that makes sense. It's because instead of um, acting out your darker side, you work through that through games. Like, okay, that, I could see that, I guess. Because I make games about, you know, people who are like, they make bad decisions, or they're bad people, or they're, you know, immoral or in some way. Um, the game I'm working on now is like, your character is basically a, a is basically a psychotic sadist who just becomes more and more violent and angry throughout the course of the game. Um, and, but, yeah, I, I, it's it's just an odd. To, everyone always comments on it, where it's like, "What you make these sort of games?" Like, yeah, I don't know. It's just what I want to make. I think okay. Squirrel Stapler has something to say about that too. Like, yeah, who's that guy? <laughs> yeah, I've doing? never made a game with a like. It struck me recently where it's like I've never made a game that starred someone who wasn't an antihero, like or just straight up a a villain like in Fingerbones or in you know Squirrel Stapler. Um I guess Dusk is really the closest. Uh mm. and and Dusk and Dusk guy is still a bit of an anti-hero like you know he smokes cigars and he's out for vengeance and stuff but also Dusk was co-written with Dave. So maybe if I'd have seen it all the way through just on my own, he would have ended up being the bad guy somehow or something. I don't know. It's probably a rut that I need to try and break out of at some point. <laughs> it's it's interesting that you're bringing up the kind of the dichotomy of man. This is an age-old concept anyway, like the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde sort of thing. And I, uh, I think that healthy people have both the light and dark side to them and they find a way to get the dark side out of them. Like that's not hurting anyone else. And then they act out their life as a pretty, you know, well put together person. And I would even say that like people who have zero like badness apparent about them, like the, you know, we've all heard the stories about like the preacher who's like, Mm -hmm. Uh, super wonderful to the whole community and he's active in politics and he's charitable and he ends up being Jim Jones, you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Or, or uh, John Wayne Gacy, like that is a deeply unhealthy thing. I, I had suspicions about my middle school counselor. I'm like, cause she was like the smiliest, like she, 
she wouldn't even like insult anyone. She'd call people like you're being a purple triangle. And I'm like, no, you're fucking, you're, you're getting tied up and fucked at night or something. There's something wrong with you. Like, <laughs> I, I don't trust that at all. You know, that does seem to like, like the, there's the, the thing that's gone around in recent times of like, um, the, you know, it's always the, like the animal crossing fans or the people with the really cutesy, profile so it's like you know speaking uwu talk and stuff it's like those are always the most toxic ones now <laughs> i'm sure that's not always the case but it is true that it's like some of the most aggressive nasty people i've run into are the ones who have the most hard, like the most non-threatening outward appearance it's very strange and then you you know there's like black metal fans are always just chill like yeah it's just like chill guys <laughs> yeah i think that's 100 percent true I and mean, that's where i get out all of my i have lots of aggression i i'm not gonna get too far into it but i came up in a very different like for the way you're describing your life mine mm-hmm. was not that way at all and yeah i just had a lot of shit i had to work out and mm-hmm. it took years of therapy and listening to fucked up metal music but i feel okay mm-hmm. now and here I am would you, you would you describe yourself as a relatively chill person now? I think that most people think so, yeah. See, that's interesting. So I, you know, had a basically uh, issueless growing up. Um, I have always had generalized anxiety disorder mm-hmm. and am in general a very high strung person. <laughs> it's like it's really weird how that happens. Like it's not a straight line of um how you're raised or what you put into your head determines who you are. It seems like there's a much more complex thing going on of like, you know, some, the, the relationship between dark things and not dark things. And I don't really know what that is, but I have a, I have a thought on it about if you look at human development over the last thousands of years, we had hunting and gathering, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the men were out hunting, killing things to survive and you had to, and you fought each other and all that aggression kind of got put in a different place when in a modern society where you don't need to do that. So it has yeah. to, it's got to come out somewhere. And usually, unfortunately it comes out, you know, on the person's wife or something like yeah. that or on their kids. So having an outlet for that, I think is important. And I think video games, you know, to take the opposite stance of what is kind of popular, you know, video games are not causing violence. They're actually potentially removing violence from the the culture. I don't know. That's just Yeah, I could idea. see that. I don't I know either. Of- like, I don't know, you know, there's, I know, I know very little about anything, but yeah, it, I agree. It's, it's like you need somewhere to take the aggression out. You don't, it's squashing the aggression or the, the darkness makes it worse accepting it and being like this is the proper place for this is not in real life the proper place for this is examining it in creative works or in or in you know looking at the creative works from someone else or things like that i think in the 90s and when we had the the big you know video game censorship lawsuits and everything um and they would point at a lot of these kids that were acting out and doing really a, a absolutely disgusting things and killing people and whatnot. And they would point at the video games and say that the the game caused it. And I would even mm-hmm. say that there's a 
strong potential there that they were looking to get that out in video games and it just failed. Like they were, the video game was probably the thing that kept it from happening earlier in a lot of cases. Mm. That could be, yeah. Setting. I don't know. I mean, I'm no fucking sociologist, but it's complicated. To that. I'm sure. It's <laughs> yeah, I don't know either. Than any of us are able to. <laughs> I just know That's for a... myself, it's like the the person I am in real life is very not dark. I'm mm-hmm. I'm like if I if I even think about like if I if I read about or think about other people who have abused their wives or children or things like that, I start feeling horrible. And yeah. like, I can't even, I can't, I can't even really kill house flies. Like I want, I want to try and let them out. I'm a very non-violent person in real life. Um, but for what, yeah, whatever reason, the start of stuff that I want to make and not always, you know, I've made some stuff that's just happy and fun, but for the most part, you know, the stuff I want, it's like, I want to explore these things as like violence and um, horror and stuff like that. So to get back to, fuck, my, my notes say finger boners. I don't know why. Ah. <laughs> um, Freudian slip, I guess. Yeah. So just like a trick, like to everyone listening now, I, I am going to probably spoil a lot of these uh, games plots, but I think it's good for the discussion. So for people who have yeah. played them already, like enjoy. And for people who haven't either stop, go play them and come back or whatever. But the plot of finger bones is essentially you're in like a, a bomb shelter of some sort and you're a, a man and you're, you're kind of reading all of these like journal entries that he's left sitting around in weird places and finding like solving puzzles to get you kind of like further into the bunker and different, different things. Yeah. And you, over the course of this, you realize like, okay, so he was at some point locked in here with his daughter and and it's like this slow un- unraveling of realizing that he has manipulated his own mind into thinking that it is the right thing to do to procreate with his daughter. And that is what, like, cause I had only played dusk when I, you know, mm-hmm. found out about finger bones and, and I was like, and I had talked to you, I had interviewed you before and I was like, he's like the nicest, happiest guy. <laughs> and, and again, like I was just like, who, hurt you like oh my god i mean i enjoyed the game I, i'm comfortable with like exploring dark territory mm-hmm. and psychology and everything but that's like all right well you really set the bar high so, so one thing i do want to mention with that yeah. um it's left vague in the game it's left open to interpretation mm-hmm. but and it, going back and looking at it, i'm like oh this implies something that i wasn't thinking of it's not actually supposed to imply that he raped his daughter Mm-hmm. Um, what it is supposed to imply, which is not any better, is that he uh, basically tortured her to death because he got his jollies off uh, from that, which is not any better. But um, so, uh, but then people have been like, "Oh my gosh, it's about like incest rape." Like, I guess it's kind of left open to you know something real bad went down, and it's left open to interpretation. I'm not yeah. sure which one of those interpretations is better, <laughs> like which is less messed up. It's just that in the, in the text, you know, he, he does mention like that he, as far as he knows, they're the last two people on earth kind of thing. And like, yeah. the, you know, very, it's very 
through the the masculine male gaze kind of situation and yeah there's no way to interpret it that's not bad in some way but yeah, yeah like it's it's just disturbing and I mean, that was what you were trying to accomplish at the time is like yeah it was supposed to be very disturbing and actually um there's an initial draft of it that was way more like explicit and it was way mm. too far and yeah. i was like no this is too far um going too far trying to just i think at that point that would have just read as very try hard um but and thankfully i didn't i i changed it i edited it down (laughs) to not be as explicit um yeah it was written the father character is sort of written as uh written as your average sort of um social darwinist uh you know intellectual (laughs) not your average because i don't think most social darwinists would um you know murder their daughters (laughs) but but it was supposed to kind of be setting up this bit of a straw man i guess but setting up this character of like um who sees morality as something that is entirely just a social construct and then putting him in a situation where he doesn't have to obey that social construct anymore. And then raising the question of like, um, where does, where is morality determined if the social construct for morality is to exist is no longer there. Is there such thing as objective morality and ethics or is there not? I have my own beliefs on that, but it was supposed to be kind of like, posing that question and then leaving it up to the player to decide for themselves. I think it's worth saying that this is not a, a new argument or a new discussion. Like yeah. this, this has happened many times throughout documented, like that kind of stuff comes up when people are in those types of situations and, yeah. and it can, it can be really grim. I mean, like, so if we're going to explore art or whatever, I mean, like don't, we're not pointing our fingers at David and saying you did this like George R. R. Martin and all these other people have done this many, many times over mm. uh, in exploring that. But I will say that because you, you've mentioned a few times, like you, you have your own, your faith and your morality that you exist by. Uh, do you feel that um, morality is innate or is it a social construct based on your experimentation? Um, with it? I believe that there is objective morality. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't necessarily, I, yeah, I, I think that morality can be very difficult to determine. I don't think that saying that there is objective morality necessarily means that it's an easy one for individuals or even groups of individuals to figure out or that there mm-hmm. aren't moral gray areas. But I think ultimately that there is such thing as like things that are, uh, there is such thing as an objective right and wrong murdering someone for no reason just because you want to is always objectively wrong, for instance. Um, But yeah, I think it's, it's, it is a much more complex issue than just here's what's right. Here's what's wrong. Um, Because there are a lot of gray areas, especially, you know, with individual problems, but yeah, my belief is ultimately there is, there, there is a foundational objectiveness to things. Yeah, I think we're all in agreement here. I just think that some people need more guidance than others. Like, Yeah, it was very okay. formative for me um, in how I in, – in realizing how messed up things – someone's 
worldview can get. I was in an ethics class in college um, where the professor was able to get uh, he was he was able to start he he started with um, a very simple ethical quandary where it's like nobody really gets hurt. Is this objectively wrong? And most people said it's it's subjective. Morality is subjective. And he progressed until he got to the point of like literally being like like he slowly progressed through quandaries until he got to the point of being like, do you believe that uh, the atrocities of Nazi Germany were objectively wrong? And there were still several people who were willing to say no, those those were not objectively wrong. Morality is a subjective social construct. Wow. And for me, that was just like that. That is fundamentally uh, disingenuous. I think. I think that is intellectually disingenuous to just ignore the strong prompting. I think all of us have that there are certain things that are just straight up wrong. There's no social construct about them. There's no, you know no subjectivity of like, well, what is your reality? It's just some things are just wrong. You know, concentration camps are wrong, for instance. Morality isn't a physical science though. No, it's not. Yeah. We're, we're kind of taught that that's the way to prove and disprove things. So you can't really use those principles on morality. Yeah. I think, I guess that depends a lot on your, uh, your worldview. Now, like, you know, I've said, I have a, christian worldview although there's there's a lot about the christian church that i do in the modern age that i disagree with but my you know worldview comes from a biblical place so obviously i believe in spiritual realities and physical realities um but if you are someone who does not believe in that um then the only way that you can really determine morality is either by social consensus or by um, evolutionary necessity. And the problem is both of those things, um, there's no mandate for either of those. The, the, you know, that, those explain the existence of morality, but they don't come with a mandate to abide by morality. Mm. Um, but then if that's your worldview, of course, there's nowhere else where you can get, you know, where you, where you can find that morality. There's no higher power to defer to. Um, I don't know what I'm trying to, you know, prove there. It's just, this is a, I'm, I'm very interested in morality and ethics. That's always been one of the, the, like the main thing that determines what I believe about the world is I have a very strong feeling of like, um, just feeling that justice and love toward people is very essential. Um, and that's really determined a lot of what I believe about the world. So it's a topic that I'm very interested in. <laughs> I mean, my, my intention for a lot of this conversation was to kind of try to explore that with you because, I mean, essentially you are an artist and I want to understand where your art comes from. So, mm-hmm. I think if you go through almost everything I do, in some way there's a theme of like the people who abuse others are in the wrong. Yeah. And the, you know, um, even as dark as stuff gets, there's never a point in my games, I don't think, where I've made it seem like, the bad guy is, you know, the, the bad person is in the right. <laughs> like, even as confused as some of the, you know, some of them are. So let's move on to sure. the, the music machine. Um, and I wanted to preface this with that you, you have an arc starting here. 
that deals with a totally different part of your uh, talent as a game developer that I think uh, I wish you would experiment with more in a mm-hmm. lot of the stuff that you're putting out today. But the uh, I'm not sure if you can answer this question too, if it's a metaphor or if it's like something you're actually into, but tinkering with machinery um, mm. in order to uh, like manifest some par- plot point in the game. And I'm curious about that. So if you could just kind of shed some light on that game and the plot and everything behind it. Yeah. Uh, so the, the moon sliver, you said moon sliver, right? We're doing them in order. The music sh- machine. We already talked about the moon sliver. We can oh, revisit we? it too. Yeah. Okay. Mo- music machine. Sorry. Um, <laughs> okay. They're, they're titled so similarly. <laughs> um, uh, so the music machine is, came about as like, like I said, I'm, I'm very, tend to be very pragmatic about development. I come from a long line of small business owners. So when I think about game development, I'm, uh, I think about it as, you know, a creative pursuit first and foremost, but also I'm always thinking about the business angle because I've just been, that's how I was raised. Um, so after the moon sliver, well, actually it was after Fingerbones did well. That's what prompted me to get right on doing the moon sliver and get something else out there for money. Cause I'm like, Hey, this did well. I should get something else out there that is like doing a similar thing, doing it better and charge money for it. <laughs> Maybe make this into a career. Um, and then the music machine was a continuing on with that where it's like, okay, let's keep extending. Let's keep on this train, try and do stuff better, bigger and everything. Um, and so I, you know, uh, brainstormed about that for a while and, I don't even remember if I th- it just really the the plot and the look and everything about that just developed really gradually. There was I can't even pinpoint a moment where it's like, oh, this is what the game's going to be about. It was really gradual, iterating on it, iterating on the look and figuring out what it was going to be. Um, and essentially, you're just you're uh, you're playing as two characters, really, because mm-hmm. you're you are playing as the spirit of a man named Quentin who is possessing uh, this adolescent girl named Haley. And um, he's sort of puppeting her around vengefully. He's, he's trying to get vengeance on her. And ostensibly his reason is that he's trying to find, uh, you know, he's, he's making her travel the world to try and find a sufficient way of killing her that will be punishment enough for, what she's done to him ostensibly that's what he's trying to do and the game is focused around you learning about the fairly complicated and weird relationship between these two characters and finding out that essentially they're both very broken uh abandoned people who kind of found each other um but then through that same brokenness ended up getting split apart and then are now back together. Um, It's about exploring that relationship and at the same time exploring this uh, sort of pseudo-Judeo-Christian mythology about these mythical figures called the Spindlemen Mm -hmm. um, and the worlds they've created. It's a very uh, large in scope game compared to either of the other two. A much more complete narrative. Yeah. Yeah. I think it gets really, really weird at times. Um, and going back, sometimes I'm like, man, 
I wish I'd written this differently or I wish I hadn't done this, but people seem to really like it. So I think that's one where like there's, there are topics it deals with that I feel like I probably wasn't equipped to write about. And I just hope that, you know, there's never going to be someone like, hopefully in the future, there isn't going to be someone who plays it with, who gets the real wrong impression from it and decides that I'm like, I don't know, a closet pedophile or something like that. (laughs) I could Um, only say that's nothing like what it feels like to be possessed by a spirit. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I definitely don't have much experience in that regard either. So I I definitely wanted to explore the relationship uh, relationship between Quentin and Haley, because as you said, uh, it kind of comes up in the story a bit about like why they're in this situation. And essentially Haley is a teenage girl and Mm -hmm. Quentin is a grown ass man who's dead now, but Mm -hmm. there, there seems to be this implication that her father murdered Quentin. If I understand correctly on on the (laughs) assumption that he had abused her in some way. And, and we're led to believe that at least in Quentin's view, this was wrong. Like this was not, actually the case and Mm -hmm. so now he's as you said kind of possessed her and or is following her around and trying to punish her like or she's in her own like unique kind of hell for what she did or that he's forcing Mm -hmm. her into and it's such a complicated relationship because it's weird it's like that's yeah we live in a society today where people have all agreed like we always you know i think we talked about this a bit last time with uh you mike but, you know, in a situation like that, you're supposed to believe the victim. And, and in this yeah. situation, we're, we're exploring this potentially gray area where, like, was she even a victim? And, and, or is he the victim? Yeah. And I don't know. So that's one of the things I would definitely not write now today. Because at that point, the, uh, like, the idea of victim blaming wasn't even that much in my subconscious. Uh, right. Essentially there I was, like, and I've had some a couple people react really strongly and negatively to that saying that it's, I'm saying that, you know, women are always lying about being abused or things like that. But no, the reason that's in there is precisely because I think it's such an unusual, weird thing. Um, And that's supposed to show how just like, she's real messed up also. Like these are both messed up people. Um, And and yeah, that was supposed to not, that, that was not supposed to be like a, oh, I'm going to write a, you know, male rights movement uh, game where the poor man got accused by, a, you know, got accused, falsely accused of rape or something. It was really supposed to just be like, she's, the fact that she would even come up with this as something to do as, uh, to lash out at him shows that she's, you know, she's got some stu- weird stuff going on also. You know, the focus was really on, I wanted to make both of these characters be someone who was messed up in some way. And that's like, you know, Quentin's extremely, or was extremely lonely. It's like his his friend was this girl from across the street or wherever that he formed a relationship with. Um, and that's such a, you know, unusual thing to happen. It's such a weird, uncomfortable thing to happen. I felt like these these people both would have needed to be odd or broken in some way for that to be a thing. And that's also why, you know, some, some things about 
Haley's sexual feelings comes up. It's not because I'm like, ooh, yeah, it's a sexy adolescent girl. That's, ew. It was because it's like, this relationship would be strained with that. You know, this is an underaged girl and a grown man having this very close relationship. And she's just, you know, kind of, she's just discovering that part of herself and that would that would make their relationship really strained and awkward and i kind of wanted to cover that it, that would just be part of that relationship a couple you know? of things that are worth saying about that is a we we don't know that she accused him of anything we just know that her dad thought something was going on so maybe yeah. they legitimately had a like a you know totally platonic okayish relationship even if it was weird um and and it's kind of weird to describe it this way, but the beauty of the story is that they've, they're kind of a codependent mm-hmm. uh, partnership here. Like they, they appear to be kind of like they need each other to figure their shit out. And maybe that's part yeah. of it too. And Hey, you mentioned Haley, you know, is coming into adolescence. I mean, have you ever read Lolita? Are you familiar with the story? No, I haven't. Okay. So really weird super fucked up kind of story, but like famously explored the topic of like, you know, underage girl, grown man. And then who's, who's the manipulator? Who is the mm-hmm. uh, person who is causing these things to happen? Obviously the answer is both in some ways, but, mm-hmm. and then who has the responsibility? Does it, a kid have a responsibility or does it, you know, that's totally a gray area. And then does an adult have a responsibility? And then we, we agree like pretty much absolutely. Yes. They have the responsibility to make the right decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that whole game comes to the point where you are you know you're dealing with what is the the main plot point, which is the the music machine, right? Mm-hmm. And and as I mentioned before, with your your exploration of machinery as a metaphor for you know how we get to the next transcend transcendentary is that a word? Part of the story is that you have uh-huh. to uh, solve this puzzle of playing the right notes on the music machine, and there's a lot implied here, but how did you intend, because I had a really tough time with this for people to solve that puzzle. Um, let's see. It's the, the one in the church. Yeah. It's so I, I wrote notes down, but they don't make sense to me anymore. It's like one, four God is four, two, four, five, six. Like is, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't even know where I was at at the time. Um, so that one, you're just supposed to kind of intuit. Uh, there's notes around with like, binary on it and you have a machine that uh makes you know makes music but it also has binary button states Mm -hmm. and you're just supposed to kind of put two and two together of like oh maybe i put these in as codes um one of the things i always struggled with with all of those games and and probably continue to struggle with with anything that isn't a shooter is um how do you make a game with like interesting gameplay where you don't want to have tangible threats kind of, you know, you don't want to have the player like doing the stealth mission around enemies or something. And you know, like, what do you do then at that point? Um, and the solution I kind of ended up coming to was puzzles. Kind of all of mm-hmm. the puzzles in, you know, in those games are supposed to kind of be natural in some way. So like the music machine, for instance, it's a, it's well. There's two music machines, really. The 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 
church organ I never thought of as being the music machine, but it is the music. It is a music machine because it's a machine that makes music. The main one is the like, you know, spike table thing. That's the music machine. Um, But the church organ thing is like, it's made by these beings who don't really understand human reality. And so they just kind of put elements of human reality together in some way that doesn't necessarily make sense to us. Um, And it's used as a portal to their created dimensions. So it would, you know, it makes sense for it to be a bit of a puzzle because it's not made to function in a completely logical way for a person. And then when you just thinking about how there is a discussion over over whether video games can or cannot be art Mm -hmm. and just like where they started and versus like what you're describing with this game, mm. I think it's so abundantly clear that yeah, this is art. About. <laughs> well, thank this you. Is, <laughs> yeah, I definitely. It's think dealing with things art. that are very much to do with the emotions and mm-hmm. the psychological nature of humans, and it's it's very deep. Thank but, you. It's weird to remember that. Like, I mean, I still think in those terms when designing games, even with some Dusk stuff. Like, I remember specifically at one point. Uh, Dave and I were doing like a, a level crit and I was talking about why this level has to be this way and blah, blah, blah. And he was just like, it's, it's not Shakespeare. We don't need to over. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is weird to think back to like the time when that was my entire focus on things. I, you know, was just, was the, the narrative and the subtext and stuff. Cause now I have many focuses. Now it's like, Oh, well, you know, the gameplay and blah, 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 and stuff now since dusk, but it's definitely for a different audience. Yeah. Yeah. But that doesn't make it less valid. I think it actually, in a way makes it more valid. I think exploring new ways of making a game is at the forefront of game design. Right? Yeah. Like, I think constantly about like, what is it to make? What, what makes a game valuable? You know, obviously what makes a game valuable is making it something that someone plays and they feel like their time was well spent or that they got something, uh, they, they got something positive out of it. Even if it's like a negative experience, you can still, that can still be a positive thing, especially if you're a horror fan, you know, mm-hmm. um, I spend a lot of time thinking about like, what is it, what do you do to make a game that does that for somebody? Um, you know what? And it's like a weirdly complicated question too. Uh, obviously the answer is like, well, make a game that's fun or make a game that's interesting and engaging. But then there's all this, there's so many different ways to do that. I think one important thing is like games traditionally were made to be addictive. Mm-hmm. So people would keep coming back, coming back, coming back. You could play it like forever. Yeah. But, quarter but in the this machine. approach of having a game that's just like an hour long experience, you don't have to play it again. It's just, that was it. Yeah. And that's a refreshing and new uh, approach that I only very recently came across. And I, you know, seeing little games on itch, for instance, they're free. You just, you know, play them in the browser and they're like 20 minutes. And I'm like, Oh yeah, that was actually pretty good. I don't have to be addicted to that. I don't yeah. have to play it forever. I just enjoyed it. And I can move on now, like watching a movie. Yeah. Yeah. There's this widening gulch, I think, between AAA development and indie development on that front, where in a lot of ways, not all indies, there's still plenty of indies that are trying to be like, 
uh, not games as a service, but trying to do that same thing of like, this is a game you play a whole bunch, a lot, you know, you spend like 60 hours doing a first playthrough and then keep coming back and stuff. But for the most part in AAA development, you are seeing almost everything going in that direction. And in indie development, there's a lot of us who are starting to realize there's probably space for games that are deliberately not something that is that. Because I know, as I, I'm sure all of you have experienced this too, but like as I get older and I become, you know, I'm no longer a high school student with no money where I want a cheap game that's super long. Now I'm, you know, a 31 year old man with a family and a career, and I want, you know, and now there's, I have more games than I can play. And so now when a game is like, I'm super short, you can complete me in an hour, that is a selling point for me. You know, yeah. back in the day, that would be like, ooh, that's, hmm, that maybe that's not worth money. Now I'm like, I will gladly play t- pay $20 for an hour-long game if it's a really good hour. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, and not have to, not have to have it be one of the innumerable titles that I start and never finish. <laughs> I, I think, like you just said, it's a selling point, and I don't think it's being used as a selling point enough, because yeah. I just became aware of it kind of by accident like oh hey that was only 20 minutes hey that was actually fun yeah uh no one told me it was going to be 20 minutes well i think it may start to be more of it i guess it depends because i think all of us are millennials right um i'm x generation okay you're gen x um but and anyone millennial and above i think is starting to get into that is in that area of like oh i think we're probably okay with shorter games um, mm-hmm. but then there's anyone below it is probably still more in the mindset of, of more is more as far as like gameplay time and stuff goes. So mm-hmm. there's an audience discrepancy there. Cause it's probably a, it's probably near an equal split on steam at this point of like younger than millennial and older than millennial. Um, so whether that's a selling point or not depends very heavily on your audience. And I don't know that there's been a very clear, distinction drawn between like here you know games for millennials and games for um gen z uh because even something like dusk where it's like well clearly this is made for like gen x and millennials with nostalgia for those games there's still plenty of like young kids who play that and that's like their first introduction to boomer shooters so Mm. yeah i think it just depends on the and it's gonna depend on whether um that's that starts to work for the audience for these games. If it starts to be like, oh, we, a lot of people want to buy this because it's short. I wanted to kind of back up to the discussion you guys were having about how uh, games can be art and, and such again, mm-hmm. but I mean, come at it from a little bit of a different angle because you guys are both ostensibly game developers is the title of your job. Mm-hmm. I, I, consider that there may be a problem with the the word we're using and that like I would finger bones, right? Mm-hmm. Is this a game or is this like a, an experience that can't be described with that word necessarily? Because I, I talked to uh Vince Desi lives here in Tucson, right? Like from running with mm-hmm. scissors and it's got gotten to know those guys pretty well. And I was talking to him and his philosophy on making a great game is like, well, it has to be like fun. You, you actually said mm-hmm. that exactly earlier. Like it's just fun, purely, simply, that's it. And he's been making games since the 80s. So like, mm-hmm. I feel like he's got a pretty good handle on what he's going for. Yeah. Um, 
but you know, something like postal is very different from something like what we're talking about here. And the point of a game implies play implies fun. You know, like we follow that thought down the line to get to fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't describe finger bones as fun. No. I would describe it as like, a. I just had a very exploratory experience um, that was not fun, but was engaging in a totally different way. And I'm like, well, is that a game? Because it doesn't follow that same trajectory of game play fun. Yeah. I'm curious. Like, do you guys have any thoughts on that? I have a lot of thoughts on it, but I'll let, uh, I'll let you go first. If you have, you have thoughts. Oh, I, I struggled very much with this when I released the game anomalies, Mm -hmm. which is more of a procedurally generated like toy you could say, uh, because Steam makes you decide, or it did at the time, is this a game or is this software? And I looked and I was like, it doesn't really accomplish anything useful in the pragmatic sense. <laughs> I, I wouldn't, uh-huh. I didn't want to call it software. Oh, here but it is. It's also not oh, traditionally. Neat. It's not a game in the traditional sense, like you're describing, Ty. Mm-hmm. But I opted for game because. A game can, like the word game, I went and looked into the root, you know, the roots, where it came from, etymology and all that. Mm-hmm. And it was like something enjoyable to pass the time, basically. It was kind of like the very bare bones definition of game. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, that's that's what it is. And so I went with that definition. That's as far as I went. <laughs> so when I was um, when I was making these... When I was was making these horror game or whatever you want to call them, um, was the time when this was a hot button issue. When there were a lot of you know walking simulators being made, and a lot of um, mostly developers, but you know players also defending them as games, and a lot of you know people who don't like that sort of experience being like these aren't games. This is not what the, they they have no gameplay. Um, there's no risk reward involved to them. They they don't count. Um, so I ended up with a lot of thoughts. I know I think Total Biscuit was the one who really started this. Um, I really liked Total Biscuit. Uh, you know, rest in peace. Um, but this is one thing I vehemently disagreed with him on because he did a whole video about why he felt something like Dear Esther did not count as a game, and he coined the term I think virtual installation which no one picked up and used. <laughs> so, uh, and I remember he was very into semantics. I remember him talking about, he was a metal fan and he was really into like sub genres of metal and categorizing mm-hmm. them and stuff. Um, and I disagreed with his video. Basically uh, the fundamental disagreement I think was that he wanted to create a classification where no classification had organically evolved. Um, essentially that uh, if you look at if you look at any term we use or even any genre or any term, um, there are gray areas to it. Uh, one of my favorite examples is Fallout 3. Is Fallout 3 a first person shooter or is Fallout 3 an RPG? It counts as both. Um, the reason that we don't have discussions about 
what is an FPS or like, is this game really an FPS or things like that is because it is one of the biggest genres in the industry. And there are so many examples of what makes a first person shooter that it's like, you can get a, you you can get sort of a nebulous um, mold based on all of these games in your brain of like, what is a first person shooter? And then when things don't fall into that, it's easy to notice, you know, like, Oh, okay. Or not easy to notice. It's like, it's easy to just be like, okay, well not everything fits, but for the most part, this is a first person shooter. Like, you know, we can, we're, we're fine with labeling fallout three, an RPG and a first person shooter. It's just like, it's both. It's two, it's a mixture of these two giant monolithic, well-established genres. Um, one genre where this does not work is immersive sim, which I have constant discussions and arguments with people about what constitutes an immersive sim and what doesn't. And the reason is because there have been very few immersive sims. There have been a whole lot of games with immersive sim elements, though. (laughs) Um, So it's very hard to get, like, a mold of, like, what is an immersive sim. The best we've come up with is, like, Deus Ex-likes. And even there, that's, like, that's based on a few games that play like that. Um, so that one, you can have endless discussions with people about, like, is Hitman an immersive sim? Is Postal 2 an immersive sim? Is Stalker an immersive sim? All of these games are games that have been brought up as possible immersive sims. Um, so that's all to say that the words we use to describe things are in, or to categorize things, rather, are inherently nebulous. They're, they yeah. always have gray edges to them. Um and I'm of the belief that unless there is a designation that evolves organically and has to happen, there doesn't need to be a designation. Um, and that's what I think is the case here, where it's like, okay, walking simulator. First of all, especially now, now there's been years since this was a discussion, but like especially now, there is no good designation for what a walking simulator is. Um, I've had people tell me that like, walking simulators are bad and then talk about how like what remains of Edith Finch is a storytelling masterpiece. Most people would categorize that as a walking simulator, but each individual person has their, you know, their definition of what it is. I've seen people categorize like, um, what is that game? The Kojima game, death stranding as a walking Mm -hmm. simulator. (laughs) Like, like there's, uh, or Proteus, is Proteus a walk? Is you know there are some that I like. Like I love games like Prote, not Proteus, Proteus. It's a different mm. game. I, I love a, that game. I love very confusing um, distinction. Yeah. There. I love games like that. I have zero interest in things like um, Gone Home, for instance. Mm. Those just so um, there's no good categorization for that. And the thing is that the audiences for so-called walking sims and the audiences for every other video game overlap quite a bit. Um, yeah. And it's, they pl- they're played on the same hardware. They're played in the same way by the same fans distributed on the same website. It's like for all practical purposes, they are video games. Now, are they necessarily always making the best use of video games as a medium? That was, I remember another one of his big arguments is that, Oh, they're, they're not, telling stories in the way that video games are meant to tell stories that doesn't matter like you can paint a you can paint a painting with like a woodchuck you can dip a woodchuck in paint and paint a painting with it 
And that's a horrible way of point painting a painting, but it's still painting. Um, so all that to say that I believe that most of what we call games, including narrative-driven, walkie, explorey games, count as games. And even though the like you know the label games is horribly ill-fitting for describing video games, and it's horribly ill-fitting even if we take out the games we're talking about, like describing you know something like Doom Eternal or I don't know what's a, like Doom you know really any big release now describing it with the same language we would use to describe Solitaire is doing a horrible injustice to the, uh, you know, the artistry and the money and everything that goes into making a game. Um, and movie, like think of movies, uh, movies is what we call movies. Movies came from when they described movies as moving pictures, you know, yep. the movies, that's a horribly poor way of describing what movies are too. We also say um, film for yeah. very, very widely digital interface. Like yeah, that too. And that's just how human language is. We use words to describe stuff, and those words are always going to have a significant amount of history into making sense. Why is a save icon a floppy disk? Nobody uses floppy disks anymore. Well, save icon's probably always going to be a floppy disk, because that's now become a save icon, even though it makes no sense. Um. Anyway, that's my that's my view on the topic of whether you know narrative driven artsy games are games or not. <laughs> and there's Roger Ebert. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar. Yeah, he famously said they'll never be art. Yeah, well, I think Roger Ebert just now, didn't so. even know anything about what he was talking about. Yeah, yeah. it's a very ignorant thing to say. It's that this, you know creative behemoth of a this this in this behemoth of a creative industry that sometimes outdoes movies in terms of uh you know in terms of revenue and in terms of sure. cultural mindshare and stuff is never going to be artistically relevant that's just that makes no sense every medium is artistically relevant if it has enough people making stuff in it and if it has matured enough so yeah, I would agree. To get to the the last topic of the day, really for me anyway, mm-hmm. um, a wolf in autumn. Uh, yeah. This is ties in pretty much everything that I've described about your sort of creative arc here, and that it has all of the motifs present. There's the the abusive relationship between the daughter and the mother. There's the machinery that allows you to kind of like solve the puzzles and move along. And then there's the, mm-hmm. the Lovecraftian transcend into madness that first strangely ends on a beach. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but this is like a very, very complete narrative as well. And I'm, I'm curious. So you wake up in a shed and you have all these different tools mm-hmm. and the mother is essentially warning you through like an intercom system, all of these like, don't do anything. And mm-hmm. what are, what are you trying to describe here? So Wolven Autumn is hard to talk about because it's left open to interpretation deliberately, although there mm-hmm. is an intended interpretation of it. It's very Lynch-inspired, specifically Mulholland Drive. Oh, yeah, okay. Which is obvious at the end. Um, but, so I don't want to talk too much about specifically what it means, um, but there is a meaning to it. 
uh, that sometimes is not as clear as it should be, maybe. But um, essentially, let's see. It's, it's about the relationship. It's kind of like the music machine, where it's music machine is about a um, broken relationship between two people, but it's not a broken and finished relationship. It's a relationship that has issues, but that I actually think um, Music Machine, just to go back to that for one second, I think that's probably the most um, it's probably the most emotional ending I've done to a game, Mm -hmm. which maybe isn't saying much since most of the other games are ending on like a horror stinger of some sort, but I've always been happy with how the music machine ended because it essentially ends with like you've seen the moment at which the relationship between these two characters is beginning to be repaired yeah um so wolf and autumn is about a similar thing it's about the relationship of a girl who has some issues and her mother who also has issues and it's being seen through the perspective of the girl and I think that's really the most I can say on it. The other thing I'll say is that I've tried to do way too much with it. This was this was when, as I said before, I was starting to feel the pressure from different sources. There was monetary pressure, and there was also the pressure of dealing with um, frustrations that I, I hate to say it, but I didn't feel like I was recognized as much as I wanted to be in the horror industry, which now looking back, was a really egotistical thing to believe. But, you know, I felt like it was, it was hard to deal with make putting all this time and effort into making these games and then seeing like some indie jump scare game that someone had made in a weekend getting all of this exposure on YouTube and stuff while no one played my games. That was, you know, very frustrating. Um, and now I've, you know, grown up and made peace with the fact that it's like, there are reasons for games, some games doing well and other games not doing well that go beyond whether it's an artistically good game or not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you have to accept those things if you work in this industry and be like, just because I think this is a well-made piece of art that I put a lot of time and effort into, it does not mean that it has what it takes to, you know, go wide with other people. I mean, there are um, many artists who die before anyone sees the yeah. work, you know, so. So there was a lot of frustration at that point, And, um, I was, f- I kind of stopped caring what people thought, which isn't the right thing to do. Um, and I, took a concept that I still think is one of the best concepts I've ever come up with for a game. And I misused it, which is frustrating to me. Um, Cause I think if I were ever given the chance to go back and redo a game somehow, it would be a wolf in autumn. Cause the basic concept of it is very, I still think really potent and I don't think I executed on it as well as I could have. Um, wolf in autumn Two electric boogaloo. Yeah. <laughs> And there's too many influence. Like the David Lynch Mulholland Drive stuff is fine, but then I was also like, oh, I really want to try experiment with doing stream of consciousness Faulkner-esque narration at the beginning. Well, of course, what happens is half the people playing it are like, 
why are you writing in run-on sentences? And that's not their fault. It's because it's a you know game nobody's heard of on Steam. So the first thing when you started a, a start up an indie horror game on Steam that you've never heard of, and you see a big run-on sentence, your first thought is not going to be ah Faulkner. You're going to be like oh <laughs> non-native English speaker <laughs> or you know something like that. Um, so that fell completely flat, and um, and it's, the ending probably did. There needed to be more. I don't know. There's a lot of issues with that game. I really wish that it had. I had done better with it. But there's still a core there of, you know, it's supposed to be sort of a psychological picture of these two characters, or at least of the girl and her perception of her mother. Um. So okay, uh, another one of your motifs is to shit on your game before I get a chance to say anything good about it. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. I'm very self-critical. <laughs> it's totally okay, man. Like this is part of who you are, and that's a beautiful thing. Um, what I, I really enjoy it. You're saying the the Mulholland Drive. This is the the movie about Audrey Horn, uh, going to become like a movie star. And well, it was like going to be Audrey Horn, right? But, and then yeah, okay. I'm just trying to make sure I'm thinking of the right thing. It's been a while yeah. since I've explored a lot of Lynch. Um, it's the, yeah, it's the one with... Uh, shoot. What is her name? <laughs> I can't remember that actress's name for some reason. I wish I but yeah, it's the one said Look that Holly. shit up, Jamie. Uh, it's not going to happen, though. Um, yeah, so anyway, the, the game itself is a very different take on a, a thing you've explored a whole lot. And that is, so let's go back to finger bones here where we have a, a character who was probably a pretty okay person and then gets put in a situation that turns him into a totally fucked up thing. And I mentioned earlier that it's through like this twisted male gaze and you've already brought up the, the giant run on sentence that begins a wolf in autumn. Yeah. And this is the, a mother or a woman at least viscerally describing, uh, a very fucked up perspective on like what it is to be a mom and like yeah. all that kind of thing. That parts from the mom's perspective. Yeah. yeah. And, and it goes into a lot of detail, like how she hopes that through all of this pain and agony, she's causing that it will make her daughter a strong person one day who will be able to look her in the eye and think, or even if she doesn't think her, like it'll be okay for me. Kind of like, there's a lot going on there. Something and, like that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I, I guess what I'm asking is like what if you were to summarize that pretty quickly, like what was the intended um, perspective you're trying to come from? Um, again, I don't want to say too much, but it um, it was that's like I said, that's written from her perspective and that's sort of explaining her view of life and her view of um and her view of her relationship with her daughter mm-hmm. um, I guess the other thing I will say about uh a wolf in autumn which maybe maybe does explains some theories and I probably shouldn't but um that game does not take place in reality yeah which I think it's- is obvious but I've definitely seen some people thinking it you know, but yeah, it's entirely just a psychological portrait of these two characters, and uh, specifically about the daughter, and what may have, you know, what her situation is. Throughout the game, and especially right at the end here, like we, we have the the. I mean, it's in the title, the wolf, right? And mm-hmm. 
and you have the initial part where you you know go into the underground bunker area and there's you can hear the wolf growling and i didn't expect to i thought that was going to be like the end state of the game and then like the wolf you break it out pretty early and you have the scene where it like attacks you and then it just goes away and you continue on with the trying to figure out what, what are you supposed to do and it seems there's some sort of implication throughout like later on that the daughter is fucked up and maybe the mother is like trying to reel her in or whatever, protect her society from her or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there's like the, the implication of like torturing the animal and like that she likes to fuck around with machinery a lot. And that her intention with the machinery is to hurt things. And, mm-hmm. and you really go all in. I mean, like right from the get go, we have the, uh, the pipes and everything that you have to kind of figure out in order to open the latch to get down there and everything. Yeah. And, do you, do you feel like I've kind of I've tried to get into this a bit, but do you feel that the the machinery is a metaphor for something in your work? I'm not sure. It's not a conscious metaphor. I mm-hmm. think it's just I like machines. <laughs> my dad was uh, my dad was an engineer. Yeah. Um. So I just like machines. <laughs> I think that's that's really. But there may be something more subconscious there. I don't know. I. Uh, I found that of all of all of the uh, the David Szymanski narrative horror pack to be like the most impactful on me. I was just like, mm. wow, that that was just an experience. I didn't know how to describe. Like, I did this all on like a Saturday morning. I think I had just gotten done talking to you, and I made sure I had my list down of like everything I needed to play to be prepared for this interview. And I just like mm. woke up in the morning and just no lifed all your games in one day, and that was the one that really hit me like the hardest. Like, man, mm. it, you had something to say there. That's cool to hear. Yeah. I've gotten comments from a few people that were like, "You can, I can tell you were a man writing this, trying to write from a woman's perspective." I'm like, "Oh, <laughs> trapped." <laughs> what else could you be then? Like, what do they expect from you to be a woman? Yeah. Like well, I guess it's true. Probably I shouldn't try and write things I don't know. But mm-hmm. it was never supposed to be about a woman's perspective per se, although it's, you know, fundamentally going to be a woman's perspective. They're both women, but that wasn't ever supposed to be the theme per se. It was more supposed, you know, it could have been, it could have made a man and his son too. Yeah. Um, it was just about that, you know, that relationship that they have. I, uh, I have real issues. Like I, I've said it many times on the show, like I'm not a critic and I have no intention of being, and I don't envy critics mm-hmm. because I think essentially trying to critique someone who's telling a story. Um, I mean, there's fundamental things like, you know, don't get your English wrong or, you know, like pacing mm-hmm. that, that kind of shit. But at the end of the day, it's who am I to say what your story is? I mean, you created this whole universe in your head and that's the beautiful thing that I love about, you know, we'll use the word games cause that's what we use. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you are creating your own universe and telling your own story through whatever perspective you have available to you. And so like, who am I to tell you like, Oh, well you wrote this story as a man and you're like the, the woman characters that you don't, you're obviously not in tune with that or whatever. Like with the, who, why would I assume that I know anything about what was going on in your head when you wrote that at all? So yeah. it's not I become dis, I used to write, uh, reviews. I used to love writing reviews of games. I even had a little review blog uh, for a mm-hmm. while. I did okay, like as you know, review blogs go, which means to say not that well at all. But um, I used to love it. But the more I've worked on games and 
uh, sort of worked in that area, the more disillusioned I am with the idea of the the institution of crit- critique and reviews. Yeah. Um, it's I've sort of now I'm at the point where I'm not sure there is such thing as good art and bad art. It's entirely contextual. And you can even see that happen in like what works are celebrated by, you know, the, the academic institution. And sometimes those works are praised for doing things that in another work are considered, uh, are considered negatives. It just depends on the context. Um, and, yeah, I, I don't know. That whole institution I've just become more and more disillusioned with because it seems very detached from the reality of what it is to make either art or products to sell. And, um, you know, even the reality of, like, what players care about. Yeah. Well, we've been here for a while, and I'm sh- I feel like we're all kind of getting tired. But uh, <laughs> for the last few minutes or whatever i would like to open up for you to potentially tell us a little bit like what's going on with gloomwood and like new blood stuff if you want to plug that shit yeah uh so mm-hmm. gloomwood uh slowly sneaks its way along in development um i think people think we're way further along than we are uh because mm-hmm. like people th- like we haven't done much level design yet because we've been doing a big big go over of the systems um, in the game, and you know, Dylan showed off the brand new suitcase inventory, for instance. That's mm. different from the one that was in the inv- in the in the demo. Yeah, and that took a long time to get working. And there's like stuff like now we have dynamic lights, or not dynamic, um, dynamically switching light maps. So you know, in the demo, it was like anything that could be turned on or off was just a real time light. Now we can do that with light maps, um, which is huge. And there's just a whole bunch of that sort of stuff that's been happening. And my job in all this has basically just been um, weighing in on design-related decisions and also asset creation. I've been doing a lot of asset creation. Um, so, yeah, Gloomwood just, just like I said, sneaks along, and it'll be done when it's done. <laughs> Hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, in addition to that, there's a Dusk patch coming up that i'm working on it's not going to be anything that exciting just some quality of life things that people have been asking for um like the ambient sounds going away yeah like those good lord i don't know how no one noticed like i'm not even saying like how did we not catch that i was like how did no one report this i guess like just that many people don't you know don't notice the ambient sounds Makes me think we spent in- way too much time on the ambient sounds. Would that include like footsteps and and monster sounds? No, or- that would just be like um, like the the ambient sound around okay. like how a room sounds or things like that. Yeah, like yeah, the rain sure sound that- in episode or in map two, for instance. Yeah. I played it, but I don't know if it had sound or not. I can't. I can't remember. Depends but on how I- recently you played it. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of people are like. I mean, it's ambient, so it's not the most obvious thing in the world, and right. they don't know what they're missing if it's not their kind of situation. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, of course, we talked about the DreadX collection, which is coming out in a few weeks. Um, pretty much, if you enjoy any of my games, either the the narrative horror side or the shooty side, you'll probably get some enjoyment out of it. Probably more so if you enjoy the shooty side, but you know, um, 
it's it's on brand for you know the sort of aesthetics and locations and things that i tend to do um but from a bunch of different developers with different you know visions of things um and then i'm working there's actually a couple games i've got going just on my own um and i'm not sure when those are going to be done in release but a few you know smaller projects nothing dusk sized because good lord that was an ordeal (laughs) but but some smaller things there's I'm I'm thinking a lot about like we talked about the difference between like fun and engaging I think or the f- fun and having a ex- interesting exploratory experience and that's something that I've been thinking a lot about going forward is like what what do I do now do I you know do I want to do a return to some of the older stuff I was doing or do I want to keep going with you know making making games that are fun um, and what is the relationship of fun with like, you know, more serious horror stories? Can you make a game that's like enjoyable to play and it's still covering those same sort of topics? It's something I've been thinking about a lot and experimenting with in various forms. So at some point you'll probably see another game out that, you know, from me that it's another horror game that does something. Well, it'll be something new. It's, you know, it's not dusk or the, the previous games. Well, when you do get ready to talk about all that stuff, when all it comes right. out or whatever, you're more than welcome anytime on the show. And I yeah. do want to thank you for like you put a lot of time into this today. And I don't think that we really all knew how long it was going to take, but I knew I had a lot that I wanted to get out of you. And so this has been really... I figured uh, it'd be a while because I always talk a lot about things. Yeah, it's, it's been a really like sobering conversation because I, <laughs> I feel like, uh, you know, in public, you know, we talk about the new blood uh, brand and everything. You're you guys are zany and crazy all the time yeah. just to get the chance to kind of like get that other side of you has been really, really cool, man. Yeah. It's, it's, it's it doesn't come out as much anymore, yeah. especially on, you know, Twitter. It's I'm basically just on Twitter to, to be goofy or <laughs> the stuff, but yeah, the artistic side, I guess. Yeah. Um, so Mike, thank you also for joining us and helping me get through the parts of the conversation that I maybe wasn't prepared to have. You've been excellent. I was very, very happy to have been allowed to be in the presence of two wonderful people. (laughs) So, uh, for Mike, star explorers and paradox vector and anomalies and the rocket blasting thing that I forgot the name of all in stores right now, go buy them. Dread X to the hunt now on sale as of this interview becoming public <laughs> mm-hmm. and everything else that we've mentioned that Dave's done or David has done. God, I, I'm, I'm always going to fuck you guys up. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's either one. Really? I, I saw someone, uh, distinguished us as, uh, what was it? Asshole Dave and teddy bear Dave, I think were the, <laughs> or something. Anyways, all of those games in stores now go buy them. Don't be a piece of shit. I love you. <laughs> So the music that you are hearing behind my beautiful voice is from the soundtrack to The Music Machine by David Szymanski. Uh, as we mentioned a bit in the podcast, he is an excellent composer, and I hope that you will go and check out all of the stuff that we've mentioned here today uh, from him and M.K. Schmidt. So thanks to both of those guys for being excellent and uh, having this really long and deep conversation that I've been wanting to have for a long time. 
thank you to you guys uh, out there listening. I couldn't do this without you, obviously. I mean, it would be weird if I did. And I just... I'm so blessed to have the opportunity to get to have these conversations. And I owe all of it to this wonderful audience that we've created over time within the Keep. And especially thank you to all of our wonderful supporters out there. It's just a long list, but fuck it, we'll read it for this one. Gotta say a big freaking thank you to Paul, Moose, Dots, Zach, Alexander, Brad, Red Eyes, Anthony, Robert, Jack, Brandy, Fred, Lord Revan, Tones, Igrak, Simon, Immorpher, Flambo and his family, Mike, and Zan. I, I love y'all. If you're out there listening and you want to support the show in some way, first and foremost, just share it, like, subscribe, review, comment, wherever you're listening to this, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, wherever, doesn't matter. Spread the word. That's what we really need around here is a little bit of love to go out into the world. You can also, of course, go to inthekeep.com forward slash support and see the many different ways that we provide for you to uh, show us some love there. Up to you. Till next time. Stay in the keep.